VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, November the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. We are looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, needless to say, for many, 2022 has been an exhausting year. Now we've flipped the calendar tomorrow for the final month of the year. I wonder what the Christmas shopping season will look like. I haven't really done much, nor am I going to plan on doing very much of it. But the impact on the local retailer... You know, with the ever-growing popularity of shopping online and the penny-pinching that many of us are forced to do, whether it be based on interest rates, the cost of living, inflationary pressures, you wonder how the local retailers are going to make out this holiday season. Anywho, are you still watching the World Cup, Dave? You watching any of the World Cup? Well, Canada's out, and we know they play Morocco tomorrow to wrap up their experience at this year's edition of the FIFA World Cup. I don't know who I'm going to land on. Maybe Croatia, maybe defending champions France. But interestingly, the very first international soccer game ever was played today in history in 1872. It was between Scotland and England. They played at the uh, Hamilton Crescent, the West of Scotland Cricket Club grounds in Patrick Glasgow. So they had a nil-nil draw. First ever international today in history, 1872, the Scots and the English. All right, let's head down to Auckland, New Zealand, check in on Team Canada's men's softball team at the World Softball Championships. We're now 5-0. Beat Japan yesterday 9-2. Uh, we advanced to the playoff format, but they're flying 5-0 and at the Worlds. Terrific. And, of course, we have six Newfoundlanders and Labradorians on that squad. All right, so turn to Curling. Curling Canada is now going to be looking for a new title sponsor for the Briar. Tim Hortons is stepping away after the 2023 championships. They've been the title sponsor since 2005. I would imagine they've done pretty well based on their involvement with Curling Canada. And, of course... Gujar Rink returning to the 2023 championships as Team Canada, the defending champions, but Tim Hortons, Tim Hortons out. All right, this is an interesting one. I remember watching a lot of these games. Sometimes I watch Jeopardy. Sometimes I'm not in the mood to feel so stunned because I don't do very well. But it was today in 2004 that Ken Jennings finally lost. Now, of course, he won $2,520,700 during that 74-game win streak. Lost to a Ventura, California realtor named Nancy Zerg. And his 75th appearance, but yeah, Jennings went on to win more money. Of course, hosted some Jeopardy games himself, but imagine winning $2.5 million because you're bright enough and quick enough to be on Jeopardy. I know there's some locals who are currently, I think, still trying to get on the program. One I'll mention in particular, and this guy blows my mind with his trivia knowledge all the time, Ted Blades. Of course, former host of On The Go. I think Ted is still trying to get on Jeopardy. hope he does. All right, let's keep going. This one was always going to come to a decision made in the courts. We know the efforts that the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation of St. John's has had to undertake to compensate the victims at Mount Cashel. Trying to raise in the neighborhood of $50 million, they've raised about 20 so far. So now while we see the final mass at St. Patrick's Church in Buren and the churches that have been sold, now the St. Patrick's uh, Church is up for, so I think it's $425,000 price tag. The next steps that will have to be adjudicated in the courtroom is about the future of some schools that were once, of course, owned in full by the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation. And after the denominational practice went away, there was an agreement between the province and the church that as long as they were used for educational purposes 
as amended in the Schools Act, that they would be left alone. Now, it looks like some 33 schools impacting 11,000 students is going to be figured out by a judge. You know, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. No one begrudges the victims being compensated, of course not. So let's get that out of the way. But what are the outcomes here that are possible? So either the judge rules with the lawyers representing the victims and the, the schools go up for sale, or the judge will have to say that the Schools Act and the amendments therein, as long as they're being used as schools for educational purposes, they will be left alone. Or will the province end up paying, you know, having to cut a check to the corporation and, of course, then will be handed over to the victims and their lawyers? But this is a big issue. I mean, we knew that there was some talk about this, and it's absolutely happening where we'll figure out what the future of these 33 schools will be. But, of course, they can't be sold out from under these students where all of a sudden they have no school. So the outcome is going to be extremely interesting on that front. So whether it be the school-related matter and or the church sell-off, whether it be the rectories, churches themselves, parish halls, any concerns you have on that front, we can talk about it today. But yeah, 33 schools impacting some 11,000 students will have to be evaluated. Let's stick with schools. So first off, what's happening in your child's school? Uh, as I mentioned many times, I've got a couple of families repeatedly give me the information about what they see in their child's class and as they talk to other school age, uh, parents of school-aged children about what's happening in their classroom and the absentee rate and what have you. So a couple of questions. What are you seeing in the school? And secondly, when the federal government said they secured a foreign supply of ibuprofen and acetaminophen for children, cold and flu medicines, have you seen it on the shelves where you shop? I don't keep an eye for it. I don't remember it when I'm in, whether it be a pharmacy or the grocery store, but you let me know what you're seeing out there because that's pretty important stuff. But I know the absentee rate is pretty high. Uh, November is Financial Literacy Month. <laughs> There's a lot to that. I read an interesting story this morning where I think the author and the people quoted therein are absolutely right. They say that financial literacy should be taught in school, and they go a step further saying it should be mandatory to take and pass that class before you're able to graduate. I mean, we know very quickly, after high school or whatever bit of post-secondary you may or may not do, that before long, money, unfortunately, becomes a big part of your life. And the ability to manage your money before the issue gets away from you and you end up as a credit risk and or bankrupt, I mean, whether it be an impact on your your own individual circumstances, your family, your mental health. Money, as unfortunate as it is, and it's not the be-all and end-all, but it goes a long way, right? We all know that to be true. So whether it be how to invest, how to manage your debt, some of the risks uh, associated with online shopping, anything involving financial literacy. Some schools, some provinces have made some amendments and made some offerings. They've been optional. So whether it be taught in math class proper or a standalone course for financial literacy that you have to take one term, say, for instance, before you graduate out of grade 12. It makes a lot of sense to me because, I mean, for those of us who are, you know, I'm a middle-aged man or maybe I'm a bit further past middle age, is it's not easy. And there's lots of risks associated with how you manage your money. There's lots of hiccups and hurdles that you have to be aware of. So if I still have to be very mindful and wary and reach out to folks who know much more about it than I do, just imagine the leg up we could give graduates from high school if we gave them some of, those, some of that knowledge so that they can enter into their post-secondary and their professional lives with just a bit of better, better understanding about how they could and should manage their money and the pitfalls if they don't do a good job managing their money. We know a lot of people 
maybe through no fault of their own, maybe just based on employment status and or some of the pressures that we felt economically and financially over the last few years, it gets away from you in a hurry. So we can take that on if you're so inclined. And on the financial front, I mean, the Bank of Canada. I still haven't been able to wrap my mind around this story in full, so I don't have a whole lot to say about it today. But the Bank of Canada, of course, is the marquee financial institution in the country. They've been in operations for 87 years. And in the third quarter of this year, the Bank of Canada lost $522 million. It's the first loss ever for the Bank of Canada. So whether it be with the quantitative easing and the government bond purchasing program, whether this is an accounting issue more than an impact on monetary policy, I really don't know. But again, yet another circumstance where I'm going to have to reach out to somebody who knows these issues much better and more comprehensively than I do. But the Bank of Canada... In one quarter, it loses $522 million for the first time in its 87-year history. So, whew, I'm not even sure what to say about that, but I'll try to figure that one out. And this one. So, when the government, when the pandemic struck and the government was trying to create programs to help Canadians keep your head above water as we tried to figure out what the pandemic was going to look like. So, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB. We know that there was some confusion, whether it be folks who were self-employed, and or erroneously or purposefully applied for it and got it but didn't deserve it and shouldn't have had it. So the thought has long been, how do you deal with those circumstances? So there's been some clawbacks put, uh, pro- proposed pardon me, by provinces for folks, say, for instance, on social assistance that applied for, they didn't lose any hours of work or what have you, but they applied and they got it. And we know it's taxable income and some people are running into a problem on that front. But now CRA is clawing back some $3.2 billion in COVID-19 financial aid benefit overpayments. A lot of this is very likely to do with identity theft and some fraudulent applications. So this number is going to grow. CRA has sent out 825,000 debt notices, or pardon me, notices of redetermination. So they're going to claw back that money. $3.2 billion? And that number of $825,000 is inevitably going to grow. They have to pour over millions and millions of applications for those types of support. You know, you know bloody well that a lot of the money went out without the required oversight and monitoring. You know, the programs were created uh, swiftly to try to get money in the hands of Canadians, as opposed to some of the, glo- the slower, normal government processes where they have to, or they at least should, consider how the oversight works. But $3.2 billion as of now, they're going to try to claw back. Number one, good luck with that. Secondly, it was easy enough for governments, provincially and federally, and CRA to talk about clawing back from CERB recipients, but we've never heard a peep about clawing back from the corporations that applied for and utilized the wage subsidy. It was important for companies to be able to keep the doors open and their employees on the payroll. But we also know that there's several examples where they not only use the wage subsidy for either creating a first-time dividend or increasing their dividends or stock buybacks, it wasn't used to keep uh, people on the payroll. For some companies, the pandemic wasn't the hiccup it was for others. You know, and again, I point to this one because this one is really quite galling, is the muckety-mucks at the Royal Ottawa Golf Club. At their annual general meeting, the treasurer said the quiet part out loud. He says they're showing a million-dollar surplus, not because there's more people playing golf or some streamlining of operations. He said specifically it's because of the wage subsidy. That's not what it was intended for. It wasn't for your profit. It was to keep employees employed. 
So, yes, we can talk about clawing back from folks who are already destitute, having a wicked time making ends meet, social assistance or otherwise, self-employed people who maybe misunderstood some of the parameters, but no, leave the corporations to their merry way, creating dividends, increasing dividends, and showing surpluses from the wage subsidy. Yeah, not good. Okay, so the Vital Science Report was released yesterday. Uh, I think it was up at the Signal Hill campus of Memorial University. I haven't had a chance to pour through it as of yet. I will. But one of the news stories that came from that particular announcement is how municipalities are positioned to deal with issues regarding climate change. So according to the report, 24% of communities in the province are taking action to mitigate the effects of climate change. 14% of the communities have begun the planning. 7% have a plan but haven't implemented it. 45% of the communities in the province are discussing climate change but they haven't begun the planning. And 10 communities aren't discussing it at all. We know it's important. Municipalities are uniquely positioned to deal with their own mitigation measures where they, where they live. But the reality is, for so many communities, especially some of the smaller communities, they don't have the money or the resources or maybe the in-house expertise to even know where to begin, let alone to formulate a plan and to implement it. So that requires some distinct guidance, whether it be from the provincial government and the Department of Municipal Affairs, and or umbrella organizations like Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, to try to put some of these issues in place, put some of these pieces in play, so that municipalities can figure this out. And you don't need me to tell you, the insurance companies will tell you, that more and more payments are going out the door for issues regarding severe weather, uh, weather occurrences. So, one of the utterances in the news story, and I know there's a lot of bad words that begin with R, whether it be resettlement, relocation, and yes, regionalization. But in the air of even baby steps for cooperation between municipalities, this is where you can pool resources because a mitigation plan regarding climate change in a bunch of very close-knit and in close proximity to each other communities, this might be one example where that sort of collaboration can work. It can make the crafting of the plan quicker. It can make it more comprehensive. It can make it less costly for the individual municipality. But if you want to take that on, we can do it. I believe we've got someone from MNL actually wanting to come on the show today. Hey, Dave, we'll put this to them. But in the Vital Science Report, there's lots of interesting stuff. There always is. It's a snapshot of the look at the, at the province. They also go on to talk about the oil industry, and just briefly. So Vital Science, and this is a forecast. It's hard to know exactly where this goes. They talk about oil production. They see it steadily decreasing through 2049, but that does not include Equinor's find out of Beta Nord which is massive, maybe 200,000 barrels per day. The thought in the industry is that it might have at least a billion barrels in that oil field, which is unbelievable. I suppose not unbelievable because we've seen what happened at Hibernia. But that's a couple of quick mentions that they make in the Vital Signs Report, of which I will do a deeper dive soon. How are we doing on the phone there, David? Let's get her going. All right. So hard to know where to start when we talk about healthcare. So a one-day closure at the blood collection offering at the Waterford Hospital based on lack of staff. Then you add in the radiation therapists and the future cancer care and the nurse practitioners and the registered nurses and the family doctors. And I suppose the shortage is across every facet of the healthcare system. And then you see the NLMA talking about making a priority of virtual care post-COVID. We've learned a lot about virtual care in the last two and a half plus years. So, of course, virtual care for some of the fundamental, non-complex or complicated needs is probably going to be a go-to for many. 
you know, save you the time and the effort to drive to whatever clinic or hospital, either in your community or possibly down the highway. So, yeah, virtual care is going to work for a lot of folks. I'm going to take advantage of it when it's appropriate for me. But they're talking about making a priority of it. So let's see where they go because, you know, if we have the wait times what they are and if we have the lack of services close by where you live, as opposed to hopping in the rig and taking a long trip, maybe a full day trip, to get the most fundamental of care, maybe it can be done right at your own kitchen table or from your couch. So anyway, healthcare, anything inside that, you know what to do. All right. I'm not even, again, really sure exactly what I think of all this, but it's the story regarding John Risley's jet. So the reaction, and you know the story here, so three councillors from the town of Stephenville plus the town manager, they flew via Air Canada to Hamburg, Germany, but they made the return flight on Mr. Risley's Bombardier BD-700-1A10 ultra-long-range private jet. Okay. So, as Alex Marland, professor, or pardon me, the head of the political science department at Memorial University says, optics are always an issue in politics, and he's right. I see reactions all the way from every single one of them should resign to there's nothing to see here, folks. And it's probably somewhere in between. You know, political gifts have to be very carefully criticized and scrutinized by the general public and by the different levels of government and their elected officials. Inside of this one, Stephenville is already all in. They're all in on Mr. Risley's World Energy GH2 Green Hydrogen Plan. Is there anything else that they, Mr. Risley needs or wants from the town of Stephenville? And, you know, this is a nice way to develop your relationship. Conflict of interest is always going to be a problem. Is this one a big problem for you? There's another big question on top of this, whether it be visits to a fishing lodge or otherwise. But how many other times... Has anybody in a position of authority, of decision-making authority, been aboard that Bombardier private jet? Whether it be senior bureaucrats or other politicians. I mean, it's a pretty nice tool to be able to dangle out there. You know, it's a helicopter ride to the Aga Khan Island. It's a private jet spin of which the vast majority of us will never see the insides of the fuselage of a private jet. So, did it have any influence? Is there any influence remaining in the offing where Mr. Risley has curried favor based on this? Someone tells me the only story inside of this is that it saved the town of Stephenville maybe a net advantage of five grand. I don't know. But, you know, the conflict of interest rules. It'd be nice to hear from the department as to how they view this one as well. The mayor of Stephenville, Tom Rose, and other councillors apparently say this is no big deal. They're quite comfortable with their decision. But I would say, again, unscientifically, my email inbox, <laughs> not on side with that particular position taken by the mayor. You want to tackle it? Let's go. A uh, couple of, just a quickie on the national front. So we've heard stories about Chinese meddling interference directly in the most recent federal election. So whether it be the fact that we've already seen the arrest of a Chinese spy who used to work at Hydro-Quebec and the whole story regarding Chinese police stations, what have you, but if China interfered financially and otherwise, whether it be through the media, whether it be directly with candidates or the representatives, when asked about it, the prime minister is pretty flimsy. Gotta say, different answers in French versus English. And he says at one time there was no impact on the federal election results. Then he goes on to say there was no significant impact. Listen, if regardless of how what the prime minister thinks, what constitutes significant, what exactly happened? 
I'm sure there's going to be some ongoing investigations and CSIS and other intelligence agencies need to keep some cards close to their vest. But what exactly happened here? And who are these people? Who are the candidates? Did any of them get elected? Are they all liberals? Are there some liberals and some conservatives? I mean, to just be able to step past that as if it's not a big deal is not appropriate. Absolutely not appropriate. What was the impact specifically? Who are the candidates? I don't know why that's a bad question. You know, it's not in the air of fear-mongering. If we're going to be concerned with foreign interference in our, in our free and fair elections, then knowing exactly who was compromised is probably pretty important. All right, a uh, more positive note before we get to your calls. Happy 43rd anniversary to Lillian and Alan Cran of Chance Golf. They're celebrating today. Best wishes from Bill, Edna, Marie, friends and family, and from myself and David Williams. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That can only happen with your calls. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board and say good morning to the mayor of Trapassi. That's Rita Pennell. Mayor Pennell, you're on the air. Good morning, Penny. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, good. It's a very nice morning here. <laughs> well, as long as it's not stormy, because that breakwater is still flattened. Yes, and uh, we're give, uh, it's given out for a storm again tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that's going to bring. It all depends on what way the wind is, right? But uh, we had a couple of engineers up here yesterday now, and our maintenance man and our deputy mayor spent about an hour and a half down there with him, explaining to him what needs to be done. Because there's no good of putting up the breakwater unless it puts the cribbage there to stop the force of the water. Couple of questions. So, after Larry, did the town receive any monies from the province or the federal government or anybody? Not until this fall. Like uh, we uh, received, uh, well, we knew about it last spring, and we were after the engineers the whole time, and they were here a few times, and we were telling them we needed it done, <clears throat> like before July, before the storm started again, but the. Uh, contract was wasn't awarded until the third of November this fall. So what was the reason for that delay? They said it was uh, like they had to go through environment and different uh, government uh, departments and stuff like that and and I I think a lot of it might have been the engineers themselves. Okay. So, you know, the concept here is can you even put something there that's going to withstand the type of storm surges that we're seeing? So is there any plans, for instance, I spoke with one of the residents yesterday, I believe, and we're talking about, you know, if people have ever been in Trapassi, you know that that one section of road is pretty close to the high water mark, no matter how you slice it. Is there any conversation about rerouting the road, for instance? Because it's one thing for the breakwater to hold. It's quite another for the road to be jeopardized every time that there is a breach. No, there's... Uh we talked about it back in uh, 2012. That was the first big storm that we had, like that done a lot of damage at that time. But they just put the sticks in that back there. But uh, uh, there's not much room there unless they cut across uh, Trapassi Harbour. That'd be the only way they could put another route there, like because. We have the breakwater, and we have the ocean on one side, and we have the harbour on the other. And like this road, that's where our water lines and mm. our power lines and everything go to the lower coast. 
So what's the timeline? Now that the contract's been awarded, I mean, are they able to start work ASAP? Is this something that'll be picked up again in the spring? What's the plan? Uh, well, they're supposed to start now. Uh, the, the contractor was down there on Saturday starting, like, and he was fixing up the road. And uh, like, and then this happened Saturday night. So now we had those engineers, like, they could tell us nothing. Like, they listened, they marked everything down, they took pictures, but they had to bring it back to people higher than them to, uh, to make the decisions. It's a it's a pretty big mess. So I mean, beyond the fact that it's been damaged already and it's not even there at this moment in time, I mean, I would imagine, you know, not just as a councillor or a mayor and talking about timelines and the amount of money and who's going to help pay for it to be put back. You know, when the road cuts off one side of the community from another, and then, of course, when you see the stories and the pictures coming from Port of Basque and elsewhere, I would imagine this is not only about money and time, it's also pretty unsettling for you and for everyone else living in Trapassi. Well, it is. I mean, uh, we talk about safety. Those people down there right now are not safe. We're right, they're right open to the ocean. The ocean is right open. The fence is gone. And the part of the fence that's left there, you can see where it's bent over, like, I mean, it's not stable. So, I mean, uh, it must be an awful feeling because even a bad night, the people in the harbour don't sleep watching it. Uh, how, how do the people on the lower coast sleep? Well, I would imagine, you know, like, even if they, uh, years before, didn't feel like they were at risk, now that we see things, even if you just have the images from Port of Basque, even if you just have the images of that night where the breakwater was broke by Larry, I'm sure it makes them go to bed pretty uneasy, and every time the wind whips up against the window, up out of the bunk you get to have a look to see how close the storm surge is getting to the house. Yeah, I understand. And what people have, uh, and the federal government is involved too, because this was federal. They passed it over to the, the provincial, and the provincial passed it over to the municipal. I mean, there's no small town can keep that going. There's three federal sites on the other side of that road. There's Powell's Head, there's the Battery, and there's Walton's Point Light for the fishermen. So they're all federal. So, like, I mean, there's more than the municipal or the provincial involved, all hands involved in this. What's the value of the contract, Mayor Pennell? Uh, it was uh, 929000 Well, you can say just about a million dollars. A million dollars. And they do nothing. Yeah, and we don't even know if they're going to be able to put something there that's going to be able to withstand the pressures that we see on the coast. Uh, anything else you want to talk about this morning, Mayor Pennell? Well, uh, I've got uh, question about our doctors, you know. We're still uh, have no doctor since June. And... Uh, uh, everybody know we had two uh, doctors here after Dr. McGarry left for three and a half years. And, like, nobody gave them a chance to get that job or didn't offer them enough to come here because, uh, like, one of the doctors have a home here, his taxes here, and they wanted to put her home as Holy Road uh, because by doing that, they wouldn't have to pay her the retention bonus, which is something like 7500 I mean... I don't think Eastern Health wants doctors in rural Newfoundland. 
I don't know. I, you know, people tell me all the time that the politicians don't care, but oh my goodness, the political victory for a governing party, if they were able to recruit more doctors, sprinkle them around the communities in rural Newfoundland and Labrador that have lost their doctor, whether it be in Trapassi or on Fogo Island or anywhere else, there's a big political win there. I don't know how successful any of these recruitment campaigns are going to be. I know they've put forward a significant amount of money to try to attract people to come here, whether it be a registered nurse or a nurse practitioner or a radiation therapist or a family doctor, but I'm not so sure how it's going. Why would you pay a lot of money for people to come, though, if you had people here that want to come here for the sake of 7000 or $8,000? And, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. So uh, I brought it to the floor of the, house, uh, of the convention, the municipal convention, when I was in Gander on the 3rd or the 4th of November, on which day it was, came up. Like, and we had a doctor there from, um, uh, he was uh, Dr. Butler from Central, and like he said, it was such an easy fix. But uh, so easy a fix, we're still five months without a doctor. Yeah, same. It reminds me of what happened on Bell Island. There was some just like, some basic accommodations requested by the doctor. When the uh, the health authority said no, that was it. Doctor left. So yeah, there's got to be a tailor made package for doctors to work in different parts of the province because we all know to be true, it's much different to live in St. John's than it is in Trapassi. And whether or not that's attractive enough, we've got to do whatever we got to do wherever we're going to have healthcare clinics. Because I also know that some of the clinics are going to be gone forever at some point. So if the communities are viable and stable and they've, been, they've had a doctor in the past, whatever the province has to do, and Dr. Megan Hayes, who's the new deputy minister on that front, she's got the worst and the toughest job in the province. Uh, Mayor Pennell, I'm off to the break. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. It's Mayor Rita Pennell out in the town of Trapassi. Uh, someone wanted me to bring this up, and I kind of forgot about it off the top, but I'm happy to talk about it is there is growing concern and people who really would like to see the provincial government make some moves on this front. It's when we see couples who have been together, married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, all of a sudden one or the other has a different need for our medical assistance. They go to long-term care and maybe get split up. When we talk about a healthy, dignified, safe, happy place to spend your final years, even if you have a medical concern, Breaking these couples up is absolutely heartbreaking. In Nova Scotia, they've actually changed their tune on that front. They will not be breaking up these couples. We've seen and heard these stories here in this province. Uh, Gavin Will's family comes to mind. I heard Cecil Whitten talking about it and he and his wife and their worries about being split up. So accommodations can be made. There is no question there. How the government approaches it and whether or not they're even considering it, it's a big one. And then, you know, to extend that conversation, I still would love to get some better understanding and, and answers as to why this province is so out of whack compared to the national average of residents in long-term care who are living in restraints, sometimes it's necessary, for their own safety and safety of other, other residents, and also the numbers of residents on antipsychotic drugs when compared to the national average. We are way, way out of whack. Actually, I had some of those in front of me a little bit earlier. Here's the story. Uh, restraints in long-term care. The percentage in this province, 14.2%. National average, 6.5%. Obviously way out of whack. When it comes to antipsychotic drug use in long-term care, in this province, 38.3% of residents are on these drugs, sometimes they're not even prescribed. The national average across the country, 219 
We need to understand those numbers. Is it simply staffing, or is there some protocol and approach that's so different here versus everywhere else? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's see here. Where am I going to go? Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Carol. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Nice sunny day out there. It is. Oh. Uh, the reason I'm calling, Patty, I'm in at St. Kevin's Parish in the Goulds, and uh, we're having a Christmas raffle on Sunday at 2 p.m., so I just want to give a little um, shout-out to anyone who's in the area or Perhaps the people who are attending the downtown parade would like to take a, a little run in. And we got a turkey wheel and a goods wheel and a chocolate wheel and a cash wheel, Nevada's face painting for the children and so on. So we're hoping to uh, to uh, add to our coffers. Now our fundraising is uh, going in the full swing again now to try and uh, build up our bank account again. And uh, we're hoping everyone will come and support our cause. Sure, why not? Uh, St. Kevin's Bank, uh, take this uh, the way it's intended, St. Kevin's Bank account must still be pretty healthy, is it, Carol, given uh, that no. unbelievable Chase the Ace result? Oh, yeah, but uh, with the uh, vicarious liability decision and the court hearings and things like that, our coffers are pretty low. What was the vicarious liability decision? I'm not familiar with that. The vicarious liability was when uh, they, um, Jeff Bodden, on behalf of the victims of Mount Cashel, oh. um, appealed the uh, court decision, uh, which was there was no vicarious liability, and then it was appealed, and they said that the diocese was um, vicariously liable for what went on at Mount Cashel, and therefore, like all the, a lot of churches have been sold and so on. It's been in the news now since pretty much this time last year, you know. I get some, uh, you know, there's so many of these issues jumbled up in my brain. Wasn't St. Kevin's spared? St. Kevin's wasn't spared. St. Kevin's came to an agreement. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, therefore, we we felt that the victim should be compensated, you know, and uh, we did our best as a parish to do the right thing. And uh, thank God it worked out, and, and we do have title to our own, uh, our hall and our church and our cemetery. And But um, we need to build up our bank account again. Okay, where and when for the raffle, Carol? The raffle is Sunday, this Sunday, at 2 p.m. in our parish hall. And that's the same place where all the JCA section took place. And um, like I said, 2 o'clock sharp. Normally we have it after the Goulds Santa Claus Parade, but because of the uh, delay in the city one, we always go the week after. But where we have all our volunteers and everything lined up for this Sunday, we're going to carry on and go ahead with the raffle. And hopefully, like I said, the downtown parade uh, people will come from there back into the raffle at 2 p.m. Hope so. Thanks for this, Carl. Good luck with it. And thanks so much, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That summer of Chase Ace and St. Kevin's was madness. Did it come down to the last card or the last two cards? Something like that, hey? And then there was a bit of controversy, and oh my goodness, it's a wonder that people haven't tried to replicate that millions of dollars in revenue in Chase the Ace. It was wild. Let's go line number three. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, I got a copy back from the ATIP on the contract with uh, Commerce Group in Eastern Health. And uh, they're still refusing to give me any financial records. 
And these records should be there. Like, nobody knows how much they're making out of Newfoundland. I know it's up in the hundreds of millions. But anyway, in the next 10 years, we're going to be in dire straits with this company. In the contract on page 213 and Schedule J. Where are you getting hundreds of millions from, Mike? Uh, from what I'm told, this is what I'm trying to verify. Their contract was worth over over uh, just the personnel contract, not counting what they're making on percentages and that stuff of stuff they're selling and buying, is $300 million for 10 years. That's $30 million a year for 30 employees. Now they got 45. And I'm trying to get the actual proof of this is such on, on record, but they are denying me access to uh, these figures. Now, the uh, I'm getting the, you know some stuff back there now, but from the Office of the Information Privacy Commissioner, but they're still refusing to give me the facts and figures. But this is what it means there, that basically they privatized the services of Eastern Health. Let me read this package into it. It's not that long. Eastern Health personnel that are already existing managers and supervisors engaged in connection with the services as of the effective date of this contract shall remain Eastern Health personnel during the term of disagreement. Any Eastern Health personnel employed in a managerial or supervisory capacity in connection with the services who resigns or is terminated and as a result creates a vacant position in the services in the provision of the services shall be replaced and filled by compass personnel hired by compass in the event such a vacancy is filled by compass personnel the parties hereby agree to mutually adjust any compass costs if applicable in order to reflect any increases in supervisory labor costs so basically what this means is that nobody knows how much we're paying for all these supervisors but in the next 10 years, every job with Eastern Health is going to be filled with a Compass personnel to make money for the Compass, to rip off the people of this province. And the Auditor General, the Chief Procurement Officer, none of these people would do their jobs to stop this takeover. So basically, in 10 years' time, the uh, our healthcare will be privatized, and this is their way of doing it. And Tom Osborne knows about it. Tom Osborne thinks that he's going down in a blaze of glory, but as far as I'm concerned, he'll see the he'll see the fires of hell. Well, I mean, I don't know about heaven and hell, uh, Mike. So you've made plenty of allegations of criminal behavior here. Do you ever worry that you know, without the facts and figures that you say you're unable to get, you're just creating a problem for yourself? No. I know enough about it there. I got enough proof that there's legal activity has gone on, is presently going on. We're being ripped off onto it. Uh, I know where to go to. I know the people that if they ever brought me to court, they'll they'll never do it because they know that I got enough onto them that they're going to have to answer some hard questions before a jury, judge and jury, and they're not going to do it. And and you know they'll be all gone, but. You know, this disagreement is there. And like I said, I've told them all, they are crooks and that and whatever. And I've said it several times, and I'm not, you know, I'm only repeating myself now. 
This is all a conspiracy for privatize our health care system, and they're doing it, and they're getting away with it. And the people who should be doing something about it are not. This is a big company that is, I think, the third biggest in the world. They got more employees than the population of Newfoundland. They could buy and sell Newfoundland. And now they're going to be owning our health care system. They're going to own the buildings. There's going to be a complete takeover that the system that they're working under. Why are they going to own the buildings? Because they're going to be charging so much. They're going to have total control over all maintenance and everything else. They're going to be funding it. And, well, when the 10 years is up and you got everybody there, there's nobody saying anything. There's nobody no owns anything. There's, there's just compass. That's it. And like I said, they'll be doing everything with the buildings, maintaining them, maintenance, and then getting paid everything back from the government. It, it, it's a, you know, it's a big way to skim the people of this province, and we can't afford it. Like right now, we're going to be paying them billions. billions. It's, it's getting up now. That not, it was before hundreds of millions, but it's getting up now to billions that these people are taking out of our province to make life easy. For a very select view, in our in Eastern Health and uh, in in Europe and in in England, but right now we don't know who owns the company now because it was up for sale worth billions of dollars, and the owner who was there uh, before the papers all got signed, the deal made when the management had all taken over new management, he got killed, and him and most of his family in a plane accident that I know two years they never figured out what happened to him. So with this company, this is a company that could buy and sell Newfoundland. And uh, we're going to have them telling us what to do and everything else with our health care dollars. And people have got to remember, Commerce Group is not there to help the people of this province. They're there to make money for the Commerce Group and nobody else. That's their job. But we're putting them all into government, government places. We're paying their rent, we're paying their heat, light, toilet tissue, you name it. We're paying for it. Every dollar we're giving them is going out of the province and out of the country. So, you know, we're being taken for a ride big time. And Dave Diamond, whatever, he's the head of it. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's organized crime. And oh, oh, okay. All right. Uh, before you say something that you might want to take back or maybe unable to take back. We'll leave it at we'll leave it at that today. But I appreciate you sending along the information. Where this really truly belongs, uh, step number one would be in Denise Hanrahan's office as the Auditor General. I mean, it's fine to do the work at Nalcor and a couple of reports. And yes, probably take a, a look now at Oil Co. regarding remuneration and what have you. But if the issue is as big as you allege it is, then of course that would be something right in the ballywick of Miss Hanrahan's office. I appreciate the call, Mike, and keep the well, info w- coming. Yeah, well, I wish, question uh, uh, <laughs> Malali, Julia Malali was back, because since uh, Ms. Hanrahan went in there, there's been no satisfaction or anything with uh, complaints and that with him. And uh, since Julia went, well, there's have been nothing. She won't talk to me. She won't answer any, any communications with her. And she's doing absolutely nothing so far. Appreciate the call, Mike. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, so someone called, and I wasn't going to get Mike to answer it, but uh, what is the Compass Group? 
Well, for starters, the Compass Group is an absolutely massive company. What they do is they provide food services and all kinds of support services uh, inside the healthcare sector in particular. So they also deal in sports, deal in leisure, they're in schools, universities, healthcare, seniors' residences. They do a lot of stuff. They actually do uh, work like East Coast Catering would do for camp life and for offshore oil rigs and that kind of stuff. They are an absolutely massive operation. So basically, inside of healthcare in this province, food services and a variety. There's another few uh, support services that they're involved in. So anyway, that's who the Compass Group are. Let's take a break. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, David Chafe. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning, and thank you again for lending me some time with you and your audience. I hope everybody's doing well over there. Happy to do it. Just before we get to the uh, topic at hand, I just went to my Gmail to find your email about this subject, (laughs) just to find that my reply is sitting there unsent. Of course. My apologies. No, no need to apologize to me. It's great to be with you again. Patty, I just wanted to let you and your audience know about a fantastic uh, Christmas concert event happening this Sunday night at Wesley United Church, and it's for a fantastic cause. Uh, The 30-piece Salvation Army Band of the St. John's Temple Corps is going to join forces with the amazing team of 10 fabulous singers I have alongside me at Wesley United Church, where I'm the music director, for what I have nicknamed an old-fashioned Christmas. So our audience can sit back and enjoy the band under the direction of my friend Mark Barter. And throughout the evening, they'll join me hammering away at the piano and Wesley Singers and a good old-fashioned sing-along. And uh, so that's going to be more than 40 musicians, over 30 instruments, coming together for just over an hour to raise the roof with timeless music everybody knows and loves. So it's just a, a, simply a concert that's going to be brimming with all of the Christmas classics. And I'm delighted to say that admission is simply a free will offering with all proceeds going to the Salvation Army Christmas Kettle Campaign. Now, I think we're all familiar with Salvation Army officers at locations throughout the city and across the province and across the country with the kettles, and those are throughout the year, and this year we just uh, call them Christmas kettles. And all of those funds go directly into the implementation of programs that uh, directly provide more comfort by way of food, clothing, and shelter to those who need it the most. And, uh, Patty, there are so many more people seemingly in need these days than ever before. So it's reassuring to know, especially about this particular mission, where donations are kept in the community where they are collected. So all proceeds for this concert will stay right here in our town to the benefit of many people we see around us every day. And if there are people who would like to attend in person uh, but are just unable because of distance or other reasons, I'm happy to say that this uh, program will be broadcast live on VOWR radio as well as on Wesley United's YouTube and Facebook channels. And if you're not able to be with us in person but would like to contribute to the Christmas Kettle campaign, you can easily do so by visiting fillthekettle.com. That's fillthekettle.com. So I hope you and your listeners are going to be able to come out and support in some way this great uh, concert event. Again, it's an old-fashioned Christmas concert extravaganza happening this Sunday evening, December the 4th, at Wesley United Church in St. John's at 7 p.m. Wesley, if people aren't familiar with its location, it's a grand old church, uh, a jewel in the crown, I like to call it, located on uh, Patrick Street, right on the corner of Patrick Street and Hamilton Avenue. It sounds lovely. And the Salvation Army, of course, do really important, especially emergency response work here in the province. Yep. And they've had a huge demand on their their services. And yep. so consequently, they've set a pretty high bar, pretty high target for this year's Kettle Campaign. Mm-hmm. They've joined the way of the future where, you know, so few of us have 
cash on hand or in pocket these days, but I think it's I'm pretty sure you were able to simply tap uh, one of those keypads and they, make a donation. They ha- they, that's exactly right. They have certainly come into the digital age, so it's uh, very, very simple. Uh, yeah, it is largely a cashless society now, but uh, they have adapted beautifully, So, uh, and I'm hoping that that function will be set up in our uh, in our church foyer at Wesley. Sounds good. So uh, Sunday, uh, December the 4th at 7 p.m. at the Wesley United Church, of course, on the corner of Patrick Street and Hamilton Avenue, an old-fashioned Christmas. Huge array of musicians and singers will be on hand that evening. And, of course, if you can't make it to the church in person, you can tune into VOWR or go to Wesley United's Facebook and YouTube channels for exactly that. Uh, break a leg. Good luck with it. Thanks so much, Patty. Awesome. Thanks. Take care, David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's David Chafe, of course, at the... Wesley United Church, he's the musical director, and of course on the board, I believe he's the chair at VOWR, our friends in radio. Let's go to line number three. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, how about you? Oh, pretty good. I was glad that the United States beat Iran yesterday in the soccer game, you know. Sure. Uh, that's become political, of course, now. Uh, what I want to throw out a bouquet here this morning... I had a bit of a situation yesterday. I, um, as you know, I use a walk. I suffered a couple of strokes and that. And I had to go into the bank to to settle up some business yesterday. And so I got uh, my usual uh, cab company. I usually got very, very good. And um, I I went into the Scotia Bank and did my business. I asked the teller to phone me a, a taxi cab on the way home. And she did that. And I'm not going to mention the taxi cab's name because that wouldn't be fair. And um, so I went out and waited, and the taxi cab showed up. Now, my uh, my apartment building is uh, is hard to find. Uh, uh, if I order something and it's been delivered, they, are, they always... A mess up where the where the uh, place is. So I got into a taxi cab, and uh, so I told the guy where I wanted to go to, and you know he didn't seem that he, he he didn't know where it was. He didn't seem that he didn't know where it was going to, and so we got just about like, to the area that it was in, and he said to me, "I don't know where where we're going," and. Uh, I said, well, you know, my mind doesn't work like it used to. And I said, I really don't know, but I know that a lot of people have a hard time finding this building. And he was getting pretty upset with me. So um, I said, said, the hell with it. I said, leave me out. So he let me go. Of course, I paid my fare. And I recognized where my building was. And... I, I walked over as far as I could, and I noticed, of course, there's a road that I had to cross. Now, that's dangerous when you're using a walker. And I was trying the best to, to get where I was supposed to be going to. I recognized the building. I didn't recognize the door I was supposed to go to, but I recognized the building. And, you know, there, the, there was a few cars go by, and, uh, you know, they, they slowed down, and it was very nice. And then I was getting pretty worried here. And a young man showed up. I don't know where he came from. And he was only a young man. 
And he said, sir, he said, you seem to be having some problems. And I said, I, I surely do. And he said, well, what's your problem? And I said, well, I said, I was in a cab, and the guy couldn't find out where where my apartment was. So I said, we, we had a bit of a an argument. And I said, and I said, I told him I'd leave me out of pay for and that. Now, I'm not um, I'm not attacking the uh, cab driver Paddy. We all have bad days, and probably it was just one of his bad days. And so the the young fellow helped me across the street, and he then said, "Now, is there someone in your building that would be able to open up the door and get you in and stuff like that?" And I, I said, "I think there is," and I remember the phone number of one person. And uh, he used his own phone and phoned the person. They were home, and the lady, came, the person came out and came up to the uh, small highway that there is there, and uh, her and uh, the, the, the young man got me down to the um, uh, into the apartment building. And this morning, I would like to say a thank you to the, uh, the young man. He certainly saved what could have been a. a uh, a more serious situation. And what I'm phoning you for this morning is that if that young man is listening to your show this morning or if his parents are listening, the only thing I know about him is that he works at Dominion uh, Grocery Store. I give, I'll give my phone number to your producer and okay. he can give me a phone call because I'd like to give him a little reward for, uh, you know, for stepping in and helping me out. I, I certainly really do appreciate it. Uh, Brian, Dave has your phone number, so I'm glad someone was there to give you a hand. And it could have gone horribly wrong, but this is good news and a good shout-out to this young fellow who works at Dominion. So if you know who that person is or you're, you're, you yourself are listening, please do indeed call us so we can connect you with Brian. Thanks for this, Brian. Thank you again, Paddy. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, quickly before we get to the news, so we talk about food insecurity and maybe more and more opportunities for more production here in the province. Here's an interesting one coming from a fellow I follow on Twitter, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. This is about the increase in value per acre of farmland by province from 2017 to 2021. The largest increase in the value of farmland in the country, provincially speaking, this province. 80% increase, just for some context. Quebec, 37%. PEI, 34%. Ontario, 34%. BC, 33%. New Brunswick, 31%. Saskatchewan, 26%. Alberta, 24%. Manitoba, 19%. Nova Scotia, 15 How can we be that far away? The increased value per acre of farmland in this province is from 17 to 21 80%. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, Amy Cody. We've also got a special guest joining us this morning. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm battling a cold the last few days, so I'm going to try not to sniff or cough during this call. So bear with me. No problem. Get well soon. I've got a sick child home as well. Yeah, it's gone through this place too. Yeah, unfortunate. So we have a special guest now. I'm going to set it up by saying there was some big shoes to fill when Mr. Pollitt left the organization, but you have indeed refilled his shoes with the new CEO. Absolutely, and Craig is still with us until the end of the year. And I would just want to say publicly again, uh, just a, a huge thank you to Craig for being, 
you know, such a pivotal person in municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, and for working so hard for municipalities over his 21 years with the organization. Um, definitely big shoes to fill, but we think we've got a great fit, and uh, our new CEO, I'm so pleased to say, is uh, Rob Nolan, and Rob is here with us this morning, and uh, he'll start with M&L on December 12th. He's been having some meetings with um Craig and staff, and he'll be involved in our board meeting coming up December the 16th as well. So it's baptism by fire, no doubt. Um, he'll be with Craig for a couple of weeks before Craig sets off to new uh, things for you know on his horizon. But uh, we couldn't be happier. Uh, excellent news, uh, Rob Nolan. Welcome to the program. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having us. Happy to have you on. First off, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a good news story to get a job like the CEO at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. But as Amy said, it's a bit of baptism by fire because there is a laundry list of initiatives that your organization is working towards. Just for a bit of background for folks who might not recognize Rob's name, uh, a bunch of senior roles. He was a senior planning analyst at Memorial University. He was on the board of Happy City St. John's, co-founded the Citizens Assembly for Stronger Elections. And now he's taken on this particular role, uh, MBA, Master of Arts from Mon, did a postgraduate certificate. Certificate of Public Policy and Governance from the University of Victoria. So the CV is strong. I wanted to get that out there for part of the introduction. Thank you very much. Okay. One of the key focus areas for you over the years, and correct me if I'm wrong, has been climate change. And, you know, the Vital Science Report and the concept of regionalization, which has been controversial in some corners, this is a great opportunity for municipalities to cooperate here. You know, one of those baby steps towards regional cooperation and or regionalization, because by and large, they don't have the funding, the expertise in-house to address this particular concern. What's your message and some of the guidance that you'll be offering at MNL on this front? Absolutely, Patty. I'm so glad that you connected those two priorities. Uh, both are strategic priorities, regionalization and climate action for um, MNL, and they both have so much overlap. Um, you know, we, we say that climate change and extreme weather events don't recognize uh, borders, you know. Um, they are very much regional uh, challenges. And, you know, we have uh, coastal communities, we have inland communities that are experiencing forest fires, we have northern communities that are experiencing the effects of climate change. And it really does require a regional approach. I think coming into um, M&L and this position um, is really exciting for um, that, for, for trying to build solutions in that MNL is ideally positioned um, to act as a convener, to act as a facilitator there. And I know that the membership is already in support of regionalization. The membership recognizes that there needs to be action um, in the realm of climate change. Um, and that's both in mitigation and adaptation. But, you know, over the last, well, this year alone, we've seen so many extreme weather events um, in Newfoundland and Labrador, and they really require immediate urgent um, action, and it has to be collective action. Um, so coming into the role, climate action is, is one of the top things on my mind. So for municipalities that have indeed entertained climate action as part of their mitigation plans, and that's only some 24%, if I remember the polling correctly, what does expertise look like? Where do they get it? You know, I harken back to Harbour, Maine, went for an uh, external consultant, which comes with an associated cost. So how does the cooperation work, and where do the expertise lie? 
Absolutely. And, and I think it, it has to be um, a variety of ways in which we do that. So, you know, we have Memorial University and CNA, uh, both post-secondary institutions that are working in this realm. We heard, uh, you know, on, on uh, your news earlier, Joel Finnis, uh, Prof. at Mon, talking about his research in, in climate change. Um, but there's also, as you mentioned, um, the opportunity to bring in private consultants. So there was um, a pilot project that MNL was involved with, um, six communities, I believe it was, um, through Fundamental Inc. Um, and they did a number of different projects uh, around the province that were pro- pilot projects. Um, town of Torbay added um, solar power to their town hall, and there were a number of other projects. Um, and those can really be built upon, um, s- small successes that can be built upon. Um, those projects were uh, funded by FCM, Federation for Canadian Municipalities, um, as well as federal funding. There's Infrastructure Canada funding available. Um, and we need, as an organization, as um, a team of municipalities, we need to be strategic moving forward about how we tackle um, climate change, how we tackle action in the communities, as regions, um, and you're right that uh, resources um, really are kind of the top priority in that. Uh, what resources do these communities need? Um, and it's not just financial, although financial is a big part of that. It's also the expertise. But the expertise is out there, you know, for the last few years, well, for the last few decades, really, there's been great expertise being built in the realm of climate action um, here across Canada, internationally. Um, and we can really learn from that and apply that to our situation. What do you suggest the Department of Municipal Affairs role should be? I think it very much needs to be in, in collaboration and partnership with MNL, with our municipalities. Um, you know, we're seeing, as, as we talked about, we're seeing more and more extreme weather events, but we're also seeing um, things like um, breakwaters and, and other types of infrastructure that are deteriorating. We just heard uh, about Port Port East um, on the news earlier this week that there's a bridge that they've been trying to get uh, repaired for the last 20 years. Um, and, of course, um, extreme weather events are going to affect that more rapidly. Um, so we really need to have a coordinated effort and it be in, in conversation and collaboration with the province and with multiple departments in the province. Yeah, that uh, bridge is in Port-au-Port East at the Romains River Bridge. They've been trying to get that settled and solved for quite a long time. Now it's a $7.8 million project that has been funded. Okay, now this is not your membership, but of course when we say that these adverse weather effects or weather uh, events, whether it be forest fires or floods or storms, what have you, they don't know and recognize any borders. And of course your membership is all in for, or the consensus is that they're all in for approaching this regionalization concept but of course we've got to include the lsds in the conversation they don't necessarily have all the information to say thumbs up or thumbs down by and large it's thumbs down coming from them what's your message to them and the play going forward i know the minister responsible plays a key role here but so does your organization because you've had the working groups and what have you how do we include LSDs in the conversation so that there's a cohesive approach to this concept so there can be a workable solution found for so many communities who, just based on population and age of population, their viability long term is in question? Absolutely. And, and I understand and we understand as MNL that the LSDs, um, some LSDs um, have voiced that they felt outside of the process. Um, and I'm looking forward to and prioritizing conversations there. I think 
M&L can act as a real facilitator in those conversations. I know that we're getting our regional workshops um, back up and running this coming year, and I think it's important for LSDs um, and communities or as, and um, municipalities, all of the communities within regions to be part of those conversations. Um, and I think more than ever, LSDs need to be brought into those, communi- uh, those conversations um, in the regions. Um, and I think they need to, uh, my message to them would be that I'm coming in wanting to have those conversations, wanting to build those relationships. And I also think that there's some great work being done um, in regions that include both municipalities and LSDs, and we can build upon those successes, whether it's in climate action, whether it's in asset management or other regional activities, um, recreation, for example. Um, We can build on the successes that exist around the province and really use those successful models to show that Regional um, regionalization, one, isn't one-size-fits-all, of course, um, but there are models that are successful and don't take away identity from communities, don't take away the autonomy of a community, but really bolster the ability of communities, whether they're incorporated municipalities or LSDs, um, to continue long-term and sustain as communities. Good example on recreation is uh, Lab City Wabush and the Mike Adam Recreational Facility. So, you know, without those partnerships and collaborations, then some of these facilities get shuttered, and that's no good for anybody in either one of the communities. Uh, When you talk about strengthening local governance, that's a big catch-all. Give us some examples where there can be pragmatic moves made for the outcome of strengthening local governance, because... Uh, not everyone listening will even know exactly what anyone might be referring to there. Give us a couple of examples of things that we should be working towards, whether it be your organization or individual municipalities. Absolutely. So the the example that's always given with regional governance is strengthening the voice of uh, local communities, and that's that's a big one. Um, right now, we have um, you know vital signs over the years. And speaking of vital signs, this week um, has shown that um, you have a significant number of seats across the uh, province that are left unfilled or claimed um, just due to declining demographics in our communities and. Um, you know, you have the same uh, wonderful volunteers stepping forward for these council positions. And once um, they vacate seats, often um, the seats are left vacant. Um, so you have small councils um, for small communities and banding together as uh, multiple councils with a strategic vision, a long term vision can help um strengthen the voice when you're speaking with higher levels of government or when you're dealing with um, private industry coming into the community. Um, so those are, those are, that is, is the most, in my opinion, important point of, of strengthening um, local governance, but also the recreation is a great example and other partnerships. Um, when you have neighboring communities um, and there's one community that's a hub um, or one community has, you know, the supermarket and another community has the ice rink, um, you can band together um, as a region to make sure that there's um, sustainability for those institutions and that you're not going to have um, one of those organizations or one of those institutions close and have everyone in the community have to uh, go further away in order just to get their groceries, which we've been talking about food security as well. You know, the um, in- increasing of food deserts, we don't want to see that happen. Um but we can really 
look long-term and sustain long-term in these communities by banding together. I'm not sure if I've ever asked this of Amy or Craig Pollitt or anyone else in the past. Does, as an advocacy group and an umbrella organization, do you take on very specific municipal concerns? For instance, uh, okay, no financial institution on Fogo Island. So it's not only about how far you have to travel to do your banking, but if I go to Gander, I'm coming back with all my staples that I shop for at Walmart, for instance. So there's an impact far and wide with very simple things like don't have a post office, don't have a bank. Do you advocate on these very specific issues, or is it more broader policy? I think it has to be, and Amy would have some thoughts on this as well, I think it has to be a hybrid um, and most likely in situations, you know, like Fogo's situation that you bring up, um, we know that other communities are experiencing or are at risk of experiencing the same challenges moving forward. Um, so many of these great challenges that are that we're hearing a single community experience, um, it's we're at risk of other communities or there are other communities experiencing those challenges as well. Um, so I think MNL's um, role um, there would be to um, look at the overall system and see how municipalities in Newfoundland and Labrador are affected by a single issue. Um, and if there is a single um, community that is experiencing a great challenge, um, we can advise that community, we can help that community, um, advocate for itself or add a voice um, to that community um, stepping forward. Uh, would you like to offer any thoughts on that one, Amy? Yeah, and I just, you know, I agree wholeheartedly with what Rob says there. And I mean, you know, as an advocacy group, we advocate for the whole of municipalities and the issues, you know, that affect all of them um, directly. That's our role. Um, you know, again, offer insight, talking about regionalization, again, one of the positive aspects of regionalization is that it strengthens and gives stability to these areas so that when you're at a risk of losing facilities like that in your communities, it makes it uh, more difficult um, for those institutions to pull out when they see the strength and resiliency in those regions. So again, you know, they're the points that we want to focus on. We want to make our communities um, and our regions attractive to businesses like that so they see the value they see um you know what community brings to not just the regions but also to those institutions in particular there's value in having um you know a bank in your community like a bank in fogo um it gives you know it gives recognition to the brand, um, it gives, uh, you know, there's less likely for, for residents in those areas to look elsewhere for those services. Um, so, you know, the shop local that we tend to focus on a lot in our communities, you know, that brings it right home. They will shop local. They will uh, support your brand. They'll support your institution. So, again, from a broad perspective, um, you know, MNL advocates for the whole, like, climate change, regionalization, fiscal framework, all those issues, um, policing, health care, it affects all of us. But on the smaller issues as well, just to be a voice, offer advice, um, and, and give support to the individual communities who are facing um, crises or, or uh, instances like that. Uh, thank you to you both for joining the program this morning. Appreciate your time, and congratulations one more time. Rob, good luck. Thanks so much, Patty. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Take good care. Thanks, Patty.
Thank you're welcome. Care. Bye-bye. That's MNL President uh, Amy Cody and MNL's new CEO, Rob Nolan. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the topic, well, that is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. Just while Dave organizes this call, I read a story this morning, which is a little bit confusing, to be honest with you, but it's about social assistance programs across the country. Apparently, there's this think tank called Maytree. They found that the highest total welfare income of any single person considered employable was in this province. $11,345 per year. That was as of 2019. So just ahead of PEI, which is 11245 So a couple of things. Number one, I don't know how anyone makes it on that amount of money. But number two, an important word inside of that statement is considered employable. So employable. What do we have to do to rethink social assistance? We know a social safety net is important. Of course it is. But what do we do to reimagine how it works and how much money flows out the door? So if you added up every social program in the province or in the country and did some serious math about how much money is actually involved in all the various programs for the said social safety net, I would imagine we can do things differently and probably do things better. Secondly, and probably most importantly, is if someone is considered employable, what do we have to do to get them employed? So the long-running conversation is, you know, choosing what is the easy path or however people like to couch it. So whether it be additional offering of skills training, whatever it is, to go down to the Murphy Center and get your GED, whatever it takes, how do we move more and more people off social assistance into what can be just an opportunity to start in the workforce, work your way up to higher rates of pay, higher positions of authority or management or mid-management or whatever the case may be. So a couple of things. How do we even evaluate the social assistance programs in the country? And what do we do about those who are, quote unquote, considered employable? How do we handle that portion of it? This is not looking down uh, one's nose at anyone receiving these payments. But if at 11345 which is pittance well below the poverty level, what do we do about those considered employable? Because there's always going to be folks who just have no other option in this world but to rely on social assistance and social safety programs. Uh, yeah, Let's go to line number one. Let's take a moment to the PC member for Topsail Paradise. He's the opposition critic for health and community services. That's Paul Din. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Appreciate, appreciate the quick uh, <laughs> getting me on here this no morning. Appreciate it. Uh, no, I was listening to you earlier this morning, and you touched on... Uh, you touched on uh, seniors and care and uh, and how, you know, in their golden years, they end up being separated due to uh, to health issues and that. And I just want to call in on that because that's been an issue I've raised uh, on behalf of people who have called in. Uh, you may recall uh, just la- last year, late or back around March or so, there was a couple that were married for 70-odd years and, and separated and trying to get them in into the same same home or the same building at least and uh you know with a lot of a uh, lot of work uh we were able to do that uh with the uh, the husband passing you know shortly after but they were able to spend their final days together for sure but i'm seeing i'm seeing more cases of this now and i have another case that i'm dealing with uh very similar uh you know a couple that were married for many years 68 in this case i believe and now one is in a in a home and the other uh in in a different location and you know we have christmas coming up and christmas you know uh it's the ultimate family family time for many and uh, not easy for many too but 
in this case, you have have a husband who who wants to see his wife on a daily basis, and and up in their late 80s, and they're getting up and trying to get in and see his wife every day. And of course, the benefit of of his wife on the other end is seeing familiar faces. But I've raised this through petitions. I've raised it through questions in the House of Assembly. Uh, it's something that's in the health accord. The health accord itself talks to uh, immediate action, immediate action to come up and develop and implement provincial legislation in in this respect, and talked about you know uh, aging at home and the importance of uh, family in, in the lives of our elderly. You know cannot be understated. You know this is out of the health accord as well. But when I asked and posed these questions in the House, you know, I think uh, the past uh, the past um, uh, minister had indicated, you know, had said something to the effect that, you know, it would be would be difficult to legislate legislate something you couldn't deliver. Well, you know, this is a very important piece for us. Other provinces have legislation in place. We are the oldest population in Canada, and this is something we just cannot wait on. And to hear these stories, and they continue to happen, and there doesn't seem to be any action taken, it's, it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking on these couples. I think it's an important uh, point made, is that how can you legislate something that you might not be able to deliver on? We've got a problem with how we place people in long-term care already here in this province. You know, whether it be with some of the beds closed and some of the facilities in Central, and you're, you're in the hospital. Whether it be the different level of political, or pardon me, of medical needs. You know, one is doing okay, and the other one has very complicated medical needs. How do we treat them appropriately and keep them together. What I'm going to try to do is figure out exactly what happened in Nova Scotia. So yeah. they made this possible via legislation. So, you know, I guess the consideration would be is if you keep a couple together and one of the residents, one of the members of that uh, couple yeah. are fine, but they're in a long-term care home, and then you have someone waiting for placement in a long-term care home, but someone who should be in a personal care home is occupying that bed. How do you balance that out with the question about their happiness, their safety, their mental well-being, I would suggest there's a way to do this. How it gets done, I don't pretend to be an expert in, on that file, but if you make those balanced questions, then I can't see how you ever come out on the end of let's separate the couple. No, and, and you know, when you talk about beds, as an example, and we know there are beds, you know, the uh, the homes that are open out in Central, I mean, there are beds, just just no staff to uh, to uh, be be bedside. So when you look at some, you know, there are, there are options because, of course, as you just the the example you just gave, you know, if, if you have someone that's at a level t uh, three or level four uh, care and, and a partner who's who's not there, uh, you know, pairing them up uh, may not put as much of a strain on staff because you have someone there who can assist in some some level. So I mean, there's ways to look at this, and and like yourself, not an expert in it. But, I mean, when we have an aging population and it's been recognized in the health accord and uh, we're all getting older, it's it's terrible that we see the, the option or the loan result is, well, sorry, you're going you're gonna to be over there and you're going to be over, in some cases, not even in the same community. And, you know, that's just, that's not the, that's not the answer we need, right? We need to look at solutions. And, and, as you said, look at what other provinces are doing. Learn from them or probably probably do better. But to hear cases of people who are married for 68, 70 years and are now separated and, uh, you know, may die alone, 
it's 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 heartbreaking and and you know when the health accord the the government's own plan blueprint for healthcare in this province says you know ask for immediate action and attention to this then you know i i i don't see that urgency it's unfortunate i don't see it and i mean the examples are really quite clear that when the couples are separated very quickly even the quote unquote healthier one mm-hmm. they start to deteriorate very very quickly so we've got to have some humanity involved in this discussion it's not just about beds and staff and all of that stuff we've got to consider what we know quite clearly to be true is that both not only is the sadness and overwhelming grief but there, even their medical conditions they deteriorate ASAP of course they would for every obvious reason anyone could probably even think of so more's got to be done here on that front and I am going to spend some time trying to figure out what happened in Nova Scotia I'm pretty sure I have someone who I know actually worked in the government under the last administration, actually in the Department of Health, uh, old friend of mine that I played hockey with. I'll see if he can give me a bit of information. Help me understand how it works so we can talk about it in a little more detail here on this show. No, and that's a good good approach, and I'm certainly going to do more research as well, and uh, maybe we can have a talk down the road on it. But, I mean, as you just said, in this particular case I'm dealing with now, the, the healthier of the two is deteriorating quicker. And, uh, you know, you're going to it's just heartbreaking. But I I just want to reach out because you had mentioned it in uh, earlier in your in your show. And, uh, you know, I have a file right in front of me, very similar. And I don't know how many number of these cases are out there, but uh, because some some just, you know, don't don't reach out. But uh, it's it's heartbreaking, and we have got to do better. Government has got to do better here. You know, all the all the uh, variables and facts are there that we're an aging population. Uh, we got to do better here because it's, it's just not not the right way to treat our seniors and treat our families. You know, in their golden years, it's terrible. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Patty. And look, look, if I don't talk to you before. Have a great Christmas. The very same to you and your family. All the best. Thanks, Paul. Bye bye. Paul Din is the PC member for Topsail. Paradise. Very quickly, there's an accident on the Betisfair Highway, 30 kilometers down. Uh, there's a moose still alive but hurt on the road, so be careful there. And uh, da, 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 what's this one say? Oh, apparently there's some tech issues in and around Cornerbrook, hearing multiple stations at the same time and whatnot. So I just got that email. I will pass your concerns and the tech matters along to engineering. Hopefully we can get it settled and solved ASAP. Let's go ahead and take a very quick break. When we come back, I can feel it. You're in the queue. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one caller. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. I'm calling... uh like, my husband passed away a few months ago, okay. and I got received a check in the mail for the cost of living or whatever, uh-huh. a $500 check, and I was just wondering, what do I do about it? Well, uh, right off the bat, my condolences on your loss. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. So, you shouldn't worry about it. The best thing to do is simply to call this number that I'm going to give you, this at the Tax Administration Division at the Department of Finance, and they'll give you more direction. So... I imagine there's still an estate uh, of your husband's, so someone might be an executor or administrator of, and you should be able to actually cash that check as long as your husband uh, is eligible for the check and filed his taxes. I think you're going to be okay, but I can give you a number where you can get the full uh, full on go-ahead from the government if you like. Okay, thank you. No problem. So this is the Tax Administration uh, Division, and their number is 729 mm-hmm. 63 
76. Seven six. Yeah, I've been trying that number, but I can't seem to get no answer. Do you use email? Uh, yeah, and oh. I tried that too, and I can't get in there. No, I. You know what? I bet you they're just overwhelmed with whether it be someone whose deceased has got the check, and or people who have moved since they filed their taxes, and of course now they don't have their check, and they're scrambling to change addresses. So I imagine this is a volume issue as opposed to being ignored. But I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, I'd keep I'd keep it until I got a response from the government. So keep trying that number and or, you know, repeatedly zip off when you get up in the morning and you're having a cup of tea, fire off that email one more time just so you have you can cover your own back. But I think you're going to be OK. So, OK. And uh, one more thing. Sure. Like, uh, you know, you get a rebate on your oil when you're burning oil and i think today is the last day for it it's the last day to apply is today you're absolutely right that's the up to five hundred dollars for home heating subsidy that's true yeah and do you have the number for that one i can find that one for you pretty quick um home heating subsidy i'd be all right if i could spell i'm the worst typer you know i talked about doing financial literacy in uh in school i wish i had to be allowed to take typing because I'm terrible. One finger on right. I guess we all are. Uh, maybe so. Okay, so there's an application form here. Let's see if I can find a phone number. Okay, the only one that they offer on the announcement from the government is this one. 729? 729. 4645. Okay, and this is the last day, right? Today is the last day to apply. If you want to send me an email, I will send you a, a link here, which also has application forms and all the rest of it, so you might be a one-stop shop. Okay, what's your email? It's openline at vocm.com. Okay, good enough. You send me that, I'll reply with this link, and this has all the information you're going to need. No problem. Okay, have a good day. The very same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and for folks who are wondering, yesterday is absolutely the deadline to apply for the Home Heating Supplement Program. Again, here's the eligibility issues. If you have a household with the maximum... Pardon me. Eligible households will receive a maximum supplement of $500 where the adjusted family income for 2021 is $100,000 or less. A partial supplement is available to households with an adjusted family income for 2021 of more than $100,000, but less or equal to $150,000. The minimum supplement will be $200. And for the most part, if you're looking for your adjusted family income, it's the net income, and if you look at your most recent tax filing, it's on line 23600. So 23600, you'll find that number there, and it is a adjusted family income is your net income. Let's go ahead. Uh, David, am I taking a break here? I'm kind of lost here now as to where we are. All right, so today's a good day to get on the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 2735211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Linda. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Uh, I think I might have a little bit of help for the people who are uh, trying to cash checks belong to their deceased. Okay. Um, I, I think if, it's, it's, if it were a small estate, like if the deceased person died without... Uh, whatever, if, if it were just a small estate, uh, the spouse of that person could actually sign that check as the um, as the executor of the estate and just 
uh, deposit it into, into their own account. That's how I understand it. And for uh, the other listeners, this was an email reply to someone with the exact same concerns sent off their concerns to the Department of Finance. And here was the comeback. It said, for the cost of living relief program, an eligible individual can include someone who is deceased so long as they meet all the criteria for the program. In these situations, the payment will be issued in the name of the deceased individual, with the executor or administrator of the estate processing the payment in accordance with their authority to deal with assets of the estate. Should an executor or administrator of an estate encounter any problems in in accessing these funds for the benefit of the estate, then they call the tax administration office. So that's the information coming directly for them. So that's why I told that lady, I think she's going to be okay. And just so she can get some additional comfort and a direct reply from government, you know, just because it's a matter of, oh, don't take my word from it, but I'm actually reading directly from a, a representative of the Department of Finance just to give people, you know, a little bit of cold comfort that everything's going to be okay. Go ahead as the executor of the estate or the administrator and put it in the account because that's what the Department of Finance has said. Absolutely. Well, uh, on a side note, I'm a retired bank manager, so uh, we've done this over the years, you know, with any kind of check, a small check that would, you know, fall under the small estate limit, and I'm sure $500 would would, would be part of that. So, yeah, absolutely. I I wouldn't call anymore if I were them. I would just sign it. Their name, executor for the estate of the deceased person's name. I think they're going to be okay. Yep. I just thought I'd call and give you that little bit of information. I'm pleased that you did, Linda. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, bye-bye. Getting a question, maybe I'll just do it versus, and I will reply to the email as well, but the Home Heating Supplement Program is for people who use furnace or stove oil to heat their home. That's it. Those are the only two eligible heating uh, sources that are eligible for this particular Subsidy, which is a break of up to five, pardon me, a check or supplement up to $500 for some. The minimum supplement is indeed $200. So that's the answer to that question. Uh, Sean, you said your mother only had part of it. So there's the, the ins and the outs of it. All right. Also, got some curious feedback here uh, <laughs> regarding the story of CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, is clawing back $3.2 billion in COVID financial benefit overpayments. Some of this inevitably is because of identity theft, but the, the CRA sent out 825,000 notices of redetermination, trying to get back this money that was ill-gotten by however many thousands and hundreds of thousands of Canadians. Okay, so yes, if someone stole someone's identity and got it, well, we need to get that money back, however that's going to work, because that person's probably in the wind by now. But I went on to say, uh, we talk about clawing back CERB from people who are maybe on social assistance or self-employed, and some of the eligibility issues were kind of confusing at the beginning. I went on to say that I've never heard a politician say, we're going to claw back from any company who availed the wage subsidy program and used it for things other than keeping people on the payroll, like stock dividends or the first time ever introduction of a stock dividend and or surplus being recorded because of the wage subsidy. It's not what it was for. Absolutely not, but we've never heard anybody from any level of politics say that we're going to deal with that issue. So the angry emailer says that, you know, you're anti-business. For starters, I'm in business, so I'm not anti-business. I'm not anti-anything, really. Well, I am some things. But why would we allow a a business, a massive corporation, to use it for some reason that it was not intended 
and just kind of shrug our shoulders. But we're willing to claw it back from someone who's bringing in $11,000 a year. Okay, let's go ahead and let's go to line one. Joe, you're on the air. Did you say Joe? That's you, Joe. Oh, that's me. Okay, I heard you're all right today, so that's good. Listen, um, I rent, and um, I pay the fuel. Am I eligible for this? No, you have to be the homeowner, and it has to be your primary residence. So what I would do, if I was the renter and I'm paying all of my fuel costs, I think he could probably strike something up with the landlord and say, look, you apply for it. And I get the money because I pay the fuel. I don't know why any legitimate homeowner would, or landlord wouldn't say, okay, that makes sense. Uh, okay, that's good. I'll, gi- I'll give him a call today. I had another question for you, by the way. Um, I bought two bottles of kombucha last week. Now, I know that's a bit of a, I'm asking for rebates. That's a bit of a luxury drink. But uh, one of them had the sugar tax on it and the other didn't, both by the same company. All they had was different labels because of the different flavors. So... I don't know if they, if they are still under, and, and in neither case did the list of ingredients say sugar. It had fruit juice, but it didn't say sugar. Yeah, look, that sugary tax has been a mess right from day one. It just yep. has. You know, some products that are being taxed when we were told they were exempt, and then you get something like, I'm paying tax, sugar tax on my eggnog, but not on my chocolate milk, and the chocolate milk has more sugar. You know, it's just been yeah. confusing right from, the, right from the get-go. That's right. Tomato vegetable cocktail drink added on it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Looking for a healthier yeah, option, okay. paying a sugar tax. That's right. Okay, thanks for your help. Pleasure. Take good care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, the reference to heat. Households where the heat is included in the rent, or if you're in a fully subsidized NLHC unit, you are not eligible. But if I'm a renter and I'm paying for a stove oil or furnace oil, I think it's a completely fair and a landlord should be accommodating. Maybe if you just do the legwork for them and fill out the application. But... Why leave any subsidy money on the table or supplement money on the table? So anyway, that's the ins and the outs of that particular issue. And if you want to take it on that or anything else, and of course, always important to remind folks that it doesn't matter if I brought it up or if you heard anyone else bring it up. If it's an issue of importance to you, that's good enough for me. No issue too big. Well, maybe some are too big and over my head, but, and none certainly are too small. I continue to get feedback, but curiously, zero calls on the issue regarding the Stephenville councillors and the town manager flying on Risley's private jet. I was considering putting it to Rob Nolan, even though he hasn't even started in his position as the CEO of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. It's probably better for the department to speak to issues regarding how councils understand and consideration given to a conflict of interest. Now, the uh, as I mentioned earlier, the reactions to this one are varied, and they're the full specter. It's they all must resign, and or nothing to see here because what do they actually get out of it other than a cozy flight home? As Alex Marlin points out, and he's absolutely right, optics have to be a careful consideration when we're talking about politics. And this one looks like, in, optically, they shouldn't have done it. Right? Now, Risley's becoming, well, not becoming, John Risley has long been a bit of a firebrand here in the province and a bit of a flashpoint for some people and some political leanings. But whether or not he stood to gain based on this flight, I don't know if there is. I'm, I might be missing something here. But, yes, there's got to be a real consideration, and not an on-the-fly decision made by councillors or mayors or town managers who are out across the pond, and in this case Germany, and making this type of decision of their own accord. Even if Mayor Rose is quite confident in his decision and or the councillors think that they d- haven't done anything wrong, 
That's where you make these decisions as a collective, sitting around a council table, as opposed to here I am Ham- um, in Hamburg, even though they got the MOU already signed, declarations of intent already signed, in Hamburg and say, uh, Rizzi says I can fly back on his Bombardier. Oh, well, that sounds pretty great. Of course it sounds pretty great. But that's where those decisions have to be made by the entirety of the council, as opposed to you call the town clerk and say, can you cancel my flight home because I'm hopping on this ultra-long-range jet. But weird enough, haven't had a single call on it. Nor have we had any calls, even though we've already completed the testimonial portion of the public uh, inquiry into the Emergencies Act, which is just an unbelievably important exercise. Maybe you think that the fix is in and it doesn't matter, and there's, a, you know, of course, the same old thing time and time again is, well, there's a liberal judge, and so the fix is in, and the whole everyone's a dictator. Yeah, anyway, so let's check in on the Twitter box. Where are VOCM Open Line? Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. Uh, let's see if that lady had sent me an email so I can reply in kind. Uh, no, not yet. So let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, well, we're going to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tim Drodge. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you doing? Couldn't be better. How about you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. So I know you're part of an organization called the Voyagers. Tell us about it. Well, a little background. I'm from Little Heart Seas, Trinity Bay. I'm living in Toronto now. I've just been here long enough to lose most of the accent. I, I figure if I'll talk to you for a couple of minutes, it'll come back pretty strong. I was in I was in university back in 1985 at MUN, and I managed to go to a game at King George V where Canada beat Honduras and qualified for the World Cup in 1986. And I've been hooked. I've been a fan ever since. I moved here in 92 and I've been following the Canadian uh, men's and women's national soccer team since then. I'm, I'm an absolute addict. And uh, the Voyageurs is a group that uh, st- started back in mid-1990s as a way to help Canadian fans like myself sort of spread the word about Canadian soccer, about the national teams, uh, the men's and the women's teams, and about organizing things like uh, uh, away trips. Uh, we've helped organize get people to Qatar, for example, right now. Uh, we actually helped uh, uh, buy a trophy that's now called the Voyager's Cup, which all the Canadian uh, uh, club teams like Toronto FC and Montreal Impact and all those teams play uh, to win every year. It's like the national championship. We helped start that back in 2000 and, uh, 2002. Uh, but primarily our goal is to help uh, uh, get Canadians uh, organized and, and, and get them all on the same page with supporting uh, both our men's and women's national soccer teams. I think it's awesome. Uh, I was also at the qualifier there, Honduras versus Canada at King George V. I sat right in front of the Honduran fan with the big bass drum, who he beat (laughs) incessantly for the entire 90 minutes. That was a bloody cold day in September, wasn't it? It absolutely was, and I'll never forget it because it was pretty exciting. It was sort of strange that they even had the game here, and, of course, the Hondurans made a pit stop in St. John, New Brunswick, before they actually came to the city hosting the event, and I'm also addicted to the sport, and I follow along very closely. It was curious the other night watching the Croatia match when uh, Duthie said Alfonso Davies' goal was the biggest moment in Canadian soccer history, and here's Janine Becky sitting on the panel, Olympic gold medalist. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, the the biggest, obviously, was winning the gold medal in Japan, but this is the biggest on the men's side. Sure. That's for sure. Absolutely. 
So, I mean, you have the luxury of being in Toronto to get to watch Toronto FC. I have seen a couple of games at BMO Field. It is quite an experience. I mean, it, it might not be like going to Church Road in England, but it is absolutely a fantastic event to take in. Yeah, well, it's certainly better than going to uh, the ACC, which is a mausoleum for the Leaf games, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how do, you get the, how do you get the I'm boys sorry, your watch parties on, uh, on the go? One of my sons watched at the Trinity Pub, the Croatia match. So how do you formalize it so that the voyagers can be part of organizing these parties? Or do people Great come question. to you? A bit of both. Uh, we actually have a very strong online presence. Uh, if you go to thevoyagers.org, uh, you can find out more details, and you can also uh, follow uh, at the Voyagers on Twitter, on social media, uh, and get all of the details about what we're doing and where we're doing it. Uh, uh, it's a very open-ended sort of organization, Patty. People that uh, are, are, like myself, that are keen on the sport and keen on, on, on growing it nationwide, uh, get involved. Uh, and then uh, we leave it to people like, like the, the one in the Trinity Pub in St. John's was organized by local voyageurs it wasn't something that we did it was something that local people did and we just helped with the promotion of it uh so basically uh, we have we have members from coast to coast to coast there's members in Iqaluit there's members in there's members in town there's members in Victoria right right across the country and and local people organize a lot of those events we pass the hat like uh, if you saw the Canada qualifier games uh at BMO Field like when all those Canadian flags are in in attendance those just don't appear they had to be bought they had to be assembled they had to be put together so we pass the hat. We do fundraisers and things like that to help uh, uh, get money so that we can create that home field advantage. Home field advantage doesn't just appear out of the air, Patty. It's something that you got to create, and that's what we're all about. We're, we're about creating the best atmosphere so that both our women's and our men's national teams can prosper going forward. I think it's awesome. And, of course, one of the qualifiers, an iconic picture will be, uh, uh, what's the fullback's name? Uh, Edekube, jumping into the snowbank. Never well, that was the ice... That was the Ice Teca. Yep. That's when it was 20 below in Edmonton. And, and, and hopefully in the years ahead, we can get some games in St. John's. That's be for great. Sure. Just a reflection. Of course, I know we got one more match coming up against Morocco. They've been extremely difficult to break. But what do you make of it? Because the anticipation and the optimism was massive. Whether it be listening to the John Herdman or other coaches or other players. Then, of course, we kind of let one slip away, a result slip away against Belgium. We were the better side on the day. Didn't look like we were in the same class as Croatia on Sunday. But what's your takeaway from the first couple of games that we've seen? Uh, the I've seen pretty much every game that they've played since 1985, the men's team. The game against Belgium was far and away the best 90 minutes they've ever played. They 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 took it to the to the one of the top three or four teams on the planet, and 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 barring a penalty and 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 uh, you know a small little let off, they might have won that game. Uh, and we're having a different conversation today. Croatia, they were uh, uh, Croatia. I think they were outcoached and outclassed. Uh, Morocco is going to be very tough as well. They're they're motivated. Uh, the question now is, can John Herdman find a way to motivate the Canadian men's team to do well? Because the thing to remember is, even though they're not going to qualify for the for the knockout stage of the World Cup, this game is still massively important. Uh, the reason why Canada had such a tough group, Belgium. Uh, Croatia and Morocco is because of their FIFA ranking. And you only bump up in the FIFA ranking when you beat teams that are ahead of you. And Morocco is ahead of them. Yep. So if they win or get a result against Morocco tomorrow, they're going to bump up in, they're going to bump up in the FIFA rankings. And the next time, and the next time that there's a world cup and, they, and we're going to be in it, obviously in 2026. Uh, but the next time that there's a big international tournament, the higher you are, the, the easier road you get. 
essentially. So there's still a lot of motivation. There's still a lot to play for. And and I think that this is a really special group. I think that they're going to go out and, and, and leave it all on the pitch tomorrow for sure. Whether that's a win or a loss or a draw, I don't know. But I can tell you right now it's not going to be too lack of trying, that's for sure. I don't pretend to be a soccer tactician, but uh, Herdman probably did make a tactical error but putting two midfielders out, uh, what is arguably the best midfield in the world, and the three, the, trio, the trio, pardon me, that the Croatians are able to put on the pitch. Okay, so we'll see where this all goes. And, you know, ultimately, are you pleased, disappointed, or how would you characterize the first two games? You know, I'm, I'm over the moon. And, I'm over the moon. I'm proud. Uh, I, I think they've I think they've acquitted themselves well. I think I, I think obviously the Croatia game was a bit of a, a bit of a let off, a bit of a disappointment. But I think they proved to the world that Canadians, the Canadian, uh, uh, the women's team is here and established. The men's team uh, has been a bit of a joke for a long time, but I think internationally now, after that first game, a lot of people stood up and took notice. You're, you're going to see a lot of these a lot of these men on the Canadian team now get uh, get. Uh, they're going to move overseas. They're going to go to teams in Europe. Uh, Alistair Johnson, one of their main uh, defenders, is probably going to move to Celtic in in Scotland see, in that. the next couple of weeks. He's moving there. Uh, there's talks about. Uh, uh, Osorio from TFC getting a getting a thing in Europe. So I think what's go- what you're going to see is is on the on the basis of the results and the performances that they've had, uh, you're going to see a lot of those guys move into top leagues in Europe, and that's just going to lift a high tide lift all bo- lifts all boats, and that's what you're going to see going forward. So there's still a lot to play for, even though they can't get into the knockout stage, and I think they're going to equip themselves well tomorrow, win, lose, or draw. Do you think Herdman hurt the team with his F Croatia comment? Nope, not at all. No, I don't not think so. Either. I don't. I don't think either. I think. I think that 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 was him trying to make sure that the pressure was off his own players. That's that that that's called coaching. That's what you do. Uh, uh, trust me, the Croatians are a fantastic team. They didn't need any additional motivation. Yeah, not at all. Belgium might come in number two in the world, but even Kevin De Bruyne says they're too old to win it. <laughs> so yeah, they realize their shortcomings, and they look pretty average in their second match as well. Very quick note on the women's side. I mean, Olympic gold medalists, and we have had a great side for a long, long time. Just in case folks don't know, longtime captain Christine Sinclair has the most goals of any active man or woman in professional soccer in international matches, period, man or woman. She's got 189 international goals, which is simply mind-boggling. If you leave a professional career with 25 international goals, you're a legend in your home country. So I don't know how we put more attention on the women because they absolutely deserve it. Well, they need a uh, they need a national league. Uh, we've got the Canadian Premier League now, uh, which started a couple of years ago. There's a team in Halifax. There's teams in BC. Uh, we need a national women's league, and uh, hopefully, with some of the some of the money that's going to be coming into the Canadian Soccer Association from this tournament, Patty, hopefully they can finally get a national women's league started because the women are punching above their weight. They're doing it without a national league, and that's something that they definitely need going forward. Absolutely. Tim, great to have you on the show. Final message. Anything else you'd like to add this morning? No, drive safe, arrive alive. VOCM cares, I suppose. Had a boy, Tim. Stay in touch. Okay. Enjoy the Moroccan Cheers. match. Bye bye. All right, bye bye. Had the Voyageurs. Pretty good. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, caller on line number one. Dave is one up by chance. Caller on line number one, going once. Okay, Hello? so th- it's a caller calling about the home heating rebate. Are you there? Yes. Go right ahead. Hey, I was just my. It's mind-boggling, actually. My mother, senior citizen, she's seventy-four years old. She burns oil. She put her application in back in September. 
The poor woman forgot to sign it. She got notification today letting her know that she declined to receive it. Like, today's the final deadline, and she's getting notification today. She's 74 years old. She obviously forgot to sign it. Like, she's burned. She sent everything with it, but this is what happened. And she, now she has to wait another 10 weeks as a senior citizen to get this $500 rebate. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's frustrating, man. It's frustrating. Just to, just to see how we're all getting screwed. Like, the whole world is screwed with money. I get that. But, I mean, man, oh, man, like, this new plan is, is gone. Look, it's always going to be some stickler issues at governments about all the boxes checked and the I's dotted and the T's crossed and signatures in the appropriate space. But, obviously, a little bit of common sense as well probably goes a very long way. Like, for instance, if she was notified that she had uh, incorrectly submitted her application and today's the deadline, no one can tell me that there shouldn't be an opportunity to resubmit today and get the money right away just like everyone else is going to. Absolutely. And it's funny enough, my wife called about it to, um, on, on my mother's behalf, and she even said, she said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to open line with, with the public with this. Oh, that's okay. You do what you got to do. <laughs> it's just the attitude. Like, I mean, come on, boy. Yeah. Really? I don't know. It's, it's sickening, actually. It's absolutely sickening. How many other people are out there like this? Poor seniors. Like, I, I know I hear it all the time on your show, but I mean, like, someone's got to give. But then you hear, like, there's, uh, it's frustrating. It's frustrating, extremely frustrating. Yeah, sure it is. And I've heard a lot of similar issues with a variety of government programs, including this home heating subsidy or supplement program, as they're calling it. Anyway, I wish it was different for your mother. And for folks at the department, look, it's really inappropriate to just slough off people's legitimate concerns. You know, someone who's advocating for their 74-year-old mother, maybe take that person just a little bit more serious and see if there's a way that we can accommodate versus reject out of hand. I know you're busy. I know you're overwhelmed. But that's kind of beside the point. Greatly appreciate it, Patty. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, and I'm going to see if I can sift through all of this. Uh, I believe his name was John called earlier. As a renter who pays the fuel cost, should he be eligible for the supplement program? And, of course, you have to be the homeowner but and primary residence, uh, resident. But So this fellow sends me a note and says, if you are talking about the provincial oil rebate, land o- landowners or landlords cannot apply. Here's where it gets a bit tricky. This guy has a few homes here in St. John's. The landlord pays for the oil and the renters pay the landlord. They are not eligible to apply. If there's... I mean, I know we might be splitting hair here, but if my rental agreement says clearly that I'm responsible for my rent and utilities, I pay for them all, including the furnace oil or stove oil, that person should absolutely be able to go through the landlord for the application, shouldn't they? So that's a bit of an odd one. And let's see here. I've been trying to get an answer to this fundamental question and unable to, don't know why. If you owe taxes, do you get this check? If you are the federal government tax, I don't know why you wouldn't get this check. Plus, if you have a bunch of outstanding fines, do you get this check? Another good question that I wish I could get a fundamental answer to, because you know that would apply to dozens, if not hundreds of people. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Center. He's the leader of the NDP. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thank you for having me on. Pleasure. I'm just following up on a call that you had last uh, er, uh, on Monday and uh, last week from Elisa Marsh and uh, uh, the, and the and the struggle she's been facing in trying to get care for her uh, her sister. 
and I will say I have to share the uh, the frustrations uh, that um, uh, that she uh, that she is facing. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the uh, MHAs uh, that are helping her. We've uh, she came to me, and I uh, we in, in my office we've been certainly doing our level best uh, to help. But I guess. Um, and, and personally speaking, what she's asking for, I think, is fair, reasonable, and in the best interest of her sister. But from my point of view, too, there, this is a, a bit of the tip of the iceberg. And I think in one thing, in, uh, in the struggle she's facing, they're turning her into a powerful advocate for all seniors um, and people who are looking to uh, for continued care and to stay in their homes. Certainly, we've heard... I, I'm listening to the stories, uh, not in the, only in the news, but seniors who are, uh, are concerned about long-term care and uh, about whether they're going to be able to uh, stay with their, their loved ones. Just for uh, a second, Jim, just so it gives some context, because maybe not everyone knows what Li- what Lisa Marsh's issue is. And I, unfortunately, refer to as Linda a couple of days later, which I apologize for. <laughs> okay. Lisa Marsh has a sister named Denise Champion. Yes. Uh, their mother passed away recently, and one of her home care workers was willing to have Denise move in with her yep. and to take care of her 24-7 because she's got a variety of issues that require some 24-hour care, including at night when she suffers from grand mal seizures. Right. So the government was only willing to pay this home care worker, I think the number was $30,000 per year. Yes. And, of course... That's not enough. <laughs> and so consequently, when the, uh, were, the offer was rejected, the only outcome for Denise would be to be in a long-term care home. When we're talking about aging in place, home yes. care support versus exactly. institutionalizing people. So that's the story we're talking about. You got it. And and, and a few things you hit on there, it's about the, the fact that uh, Denise is not a, is incapable of living uh, on her own independently. And the only way she's going to be able to, to live in her place is with continuous care. It's not, this is not someone you can necessarily walk out and, and leave on her own. Uh, and and plus also the fact the other issue you touch on is about uh, the inadequate amount of money being offered to the person who is willing to look after her. and certainly that 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 goes to the heart a uh, heart of a lot of the issues we're, we've got we've got an aging population we know it's coming we know that seniors are concerned about uh, being able to stay together uh, as they as so that they can age together and in place we uh, in my own office here we've had people uh, family members who have had their uh, their loved ones move from a, pers- a personal care home to a long-term care facility, level three, an hour and a half away, which makes it impossible for them for, to have the daily contact. But in this situation, I, I can't help. I, I had to go through uh, review my uh, the health accord, and a number of the things it uh, talks about, and the seniors advocate talk about aging in place, which you touched on, about a person-centered, home-first approach, and about appropriately compensating staff, and about expending. Uh, uh, expanding care options. So I think in some ways uh, this this is a struggle in many ways that sh- uh, that shouldn't be taking place uh, where uh, where a family member has to uh, has to, uh, to take on this and not just this person. Elisa and Denise are, they're just the tip of the iceberg that's coming our way in which we and and the government is going to have to uh, respond to this. And, and sorry, go on. I was going to say I'm loath to talk about individuals and then in the same breath talk about money but of course money is part of the deciding factors when government creates policy and all these things the numbers that lisa offered are incredible let's just think about it out loud thirty thousand dollars to and that's not a suitable amount of money but to be in a home with someone who cares about you and offering 24-hour care they know each other they have a relationship 
the cost for someone in a long-term care facility, the number that Lisa used, was $200,000. So even if we're boiling things down to math and to uh, numbers, and I'm not sure if $200,000 is the exact number. I don't know, but that's the number Lisa offered. So even if it was $50,000 for the home care worker, we're coming out ahead. The person is safer because of her complex needs. Uh, Lisa thinks she's quite vulnerable in a long-term care setting. So there's a lot of moving parts here. It is, and and I guess the significant thing is here. It it, it comes. It is down the money because you're looking. If anything, we've learned from the pandemic and the and the and the shortage in our um, in our uh, in our healthcare system and the and the measures that government has taken to uh, to uh, compensation to retain and uh, to recruit and retain uh, qualified healthcare individuals and to keep them in the job. It tells you, uh, if anything else, if we want to have a viable workforce, people who are well-trained and who are compassionate and who know their business, then I think it is appropriate to compensate them. But it's also about inclusion because, and and Patty, you know, uh, I, I, I taught for years, and there's a difference between inclusion and being inclusive. And inclusive means whether it's in the school system or in the community, uh, providing the supports in place, uh, put the supports in place that allow that person to engage in the community. It's not just a matter of placing someone there; it's about putting uh, putting uh, putting those uh, those uh, those measures in place that allow them to thrive. And I do believe <clears throat> keep people out of uh, out of long care care, uh, uh, care as long as you can. Keep people independent. I know. I mean, we're all getting older, and I, I think for the most part of us, uh, the the thing we cherish most is our independence. And uh, and and if there's a if there's a way to keep people in the community, uh, and and if you got if you got qualified uh, caregivers, then pay them accordingly. Otherwise, you're not going to attract people to a uh, to uh, to this vital uh, this vital service. If indeed uh, they can't make a living of it, it's uh, any any job, and you know yourself, even in your role here as the host of this show, anytime you you interact with people, it is challenging at times. It 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 it's, it requires a significant uh, a personality, a significant level of patience, and everything else that goes with it. Uh, so I think in many cases here, what the, what what's being missed is that you have an opportunity here to keep this uh, this person, Denise. Uh, Denise in her home, with uh, and, and I would argue, and I would agree with me, uh, at least maybe at a significant, uh, a, a more affordable cost than a long-term care facility, and probably a healthier outcome. And uh, and she's still part of the community. She and and she has an engagement. I think all around that's a good investment in people and a good investment in Denise, but a good investment in people. And if any, if they if we follow the health court, we're going to have to start looking at this uh, and uh, and start addressing it. Well, we are. So there's a variety of those things. So that's a situation separating couples in long-term yeah. care if they have different medical needs is a real important conversation that we have to have. And in the broad scope of things, planning for the future regarding the aging population, it's, that's not an insult. That's just a fact. Yeah. To not understand it. Because when we have all the list of the media concerns that are there today does not mean we cannot think about tomorrow. In fact, we must. So to get it right is going to save us money, be less chaotic, less angst, less grief, less worry, less stress. All of those things combined are going to be critically important. And figuring out a way, like Suzanne Brake would say, or the Health Accord says, to figure out the best way to age in place safely, dignified, and yes, considering uh, the finances of it all, we've got to get it right. And for money, look, I'll, and I'll finish with this, and that's uh, spot on. 
I used it. <clears throat> there are a lot of people out there, young people, let's say, who might have their children, their own children, who are also looking after an aging relative. So they're sandwiched between the two and and, and uh, they're burning the candle at both ends. So if if anything else, it's it's about uh, uh, making sure that all fa- the family unit itself is uh, has to support its need, and uh, and and uh, and that they they're not being burned out and and increasing health problems and so on and so forth. So I think all around. Uh, finding a way to allow people to, as, as the health court says, um, person-centered, home-first policy, and putting the supports in place. I think it's not just going to benefit the people who are the the, the, the seniors who need that, but also the, uh, the the families who are doing their struggling to do their best to help their their loved ones as well. Appreciate the time, Jim. Take care, sir. You too. Bye bye. Jim Din, he's the NDP member for St John's Centre and the leader of the New Democratic Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. Taking a break. When we come back, Marie, appreciate your patience. You're next. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. You're sounding well, so I presume you're well. Doing okay. Thanks for asking, Wayne. How about you? Oh, very good, boy. Tough show. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Patty, I thought I'd uh, give you a call today just to uh, get us refocused for a little while on what is actually going on in Ukraine. What I call Lucifer Putin's war on the Ukrainian people, I guess. And uh, last time you and I talked about this, there was a question in my mind about whether or not the ordinary citizens of the Russian Republic are able to travel around the world as they did before the uh, incursion into Ukraine happened. And I still don't have an answer to that. And do you have you got anything new since our discussions a couple of weeks ago? No, not really. I admit freely I'm keeping one eye on what's happening there. I know that it's... I don't know where the off-ramp is. I don't know how this ends. But it's remarkable just how many pro-Putin supporters there are all of a sudden coming out of the woodwork. Well, shame on them, as far as I'm concerned. Any any nation that is doing to a, a fellow nation what uh, what Russia is doing to the people in the in the country of Ukraine is just unacceptable. This may have worked 2,000 years ago, but in this century, I'm afraid people are are not very most people anyway are not very accommodating with the idea of waging war again. And when you look at the level of destruction and the duress that the Ukrainian people are under. I mean, this is unconscionable. How can a fellow human being do this to another fellow human being? I just don't get it. And it's time for either the United Nations to close its doors and send all those people home, and it's time for perhaps NATO to grow a set of gonads and, and start pushing back on this because it isn't only... Unfortunately, as it is the people of Ukraine, it's the people of the whole world that are impacted by what's going on there. And for what? I've yet to hear any sensible rationale, if there's possible to invent such a rationale, for this incursion. I just don't get it. A few things. So NATO pushback, what does that look like? Is there not any legitimate fear of escalation that comes with that? Well, it always is always at the level of risk, Betty. But just think—I mean, 
Putin has uh, commandeered the the airspace of the country of Ukraine. He's commandeered international waterways in the Black Sea and access to. And uh, what are we all doing about that? Compare that with the pushback to uh, China for what it's doing in the South China Sea. And you hear the Americans chatting about that all the time and worried about that. But why aren't we worried about similar things happening in, in uh, Europe, in the Black Sea, for example? I don't know. I can't answer that question. No, I, I wasn't expecting. It's just me uh, thinking about the issues and the comparisons with what happens elsewhere on the planet and the involvement and the dismay expressed by countries, including our own, but yet nobody's saying much about what's happening there, you know, and, and millions of people are, are in duress this coming winter, and if What's happening here in our little part of the world is any indication it is likely that this is going to be one of these intolerable, near intolerable winters, even if you have heat and light. But imagine being in Ukraine where a large part of the population, their, their comfort level is totally destroyed because Putin and his military crazy people have decided to target infrastructure as they're doing is just unbelievable and i think the world is is going to get involved in this sooner or later and sooner or better i think because right now we're looking at the virtual destruction of a nation for no reason whatever a peaceful nation i might add yeah now whether this ends up uh at the hague and whatnot it seems quite clear that there's been some atrocities that can be considered Crimes against humanity and war crimes. I don't think Ukraine has been left out of that conversation either. There's a possibility that they've acted in kind. Uh, so I can't get into that. The biggest problem with all of this for me, Wayne, is it's extremely difficult to get an unvarnished, legitimate account of what's going on during the course of this months-long war. You know, we'll get tidbits where you think you can really trust the source. Uh, someone just sent me an email saying there's been some interesting writing in The Economist recently about this, and I have read some of those articles. But it's really hard to know exactly who was telling me what's actually happening versus giving me their own personal spin on what's happening and or uh, purposeful mistruths or untruths and misinformation coming out. It, it's just hard to really know exactly what's going on. I think we can all agree that it's atrocious and unprovoked you know because if the provocation is deemed to be well ukraine we can't have them joining nato that's not provocation for war i don't know how that could ever be considered as such so i don't know like i say i'm only watching with one eye maybe because it's just so overwhelming and i'm already overwhelmed with so many different things but fair ball always up for a conversation on that or anything else yeah i hear you patty i guess we're all subjected to this challenge of trying to filter the truth from it all but I think that's, as they say, the first victim of war is truth. Yep. And I don't doubt that, that to be the case because, you know, if you hear stories that don't always all fit together, but there's one self-evident truth, and that is the destruction that has been uh, laid on the people and, and the nation of Ukraine. It's unavoidable. So even if there is a slight bit of untruth, it's irrelevant when you compare what's actually been done. They'll be decades, if not generations, rebuilding and recovering. That much is indisputable. Gener generations, if they ever do, and we'll all have to pitch in and, and provide the resources to get it done. 
unfortunately, and I seriously doubt that any of this is going to be paid for by Putin win, lose, or draw on this. So. No. There won't be any reparations coming. Uh, just before we run out of time, Wayne, I know this is not what you called about, but what were your takeaways on some of the reports recently about the George River Caribou? Well, I said before, my prediction was that there's nobody alive in Labrador today that will see the herd get back to its uh, 700,000 level of a number of years ago. And the more people continue to poach animals from that herd, the longer the delay, the delay will be. I mean, if you go back to our little situation here in Newfoundland back in the 30s where our caribou populations collapsed, it took something in the order of 30, 35 years before there was any sign of any recovery. And that's the strange thing about caribou herds. When they get at a low level, any recovery is a long, painful process. And uh, if if the Inu from other parts of the region up there continue to take animals out of that herd is just simple mathematics. You delay, delay, delay any recovery, and it seems that there's still people doing that. So it's a shame, really. It's a, a, a real crime against humanity in a way that the people of Labrador, who many of the, the First Nations people in Labrador who depend on, on the food source, and, you know, it's part of their, their heritage and culture and their other things that's important in their lives, you know, are standing by and, and allowing this to happen to themselves. And the government here locally is, looks like somebody with their hands tied behind the back in the way they try to intervene in these incursions by poachers, you know, on that herd. It's just unacceptable, really. The government needs to develop a bit of spine and get in there and in coordination with the government of Quebec and deal with poaching, period, because it's going to be a long, long time. It won't be in my lifetime we'll see that herd recovery. I'm pretty sure of that. Well, it used to be one time that the hills looked like they were moving with the number of animals on it. So if it was around 800,000 animals in the 50s and 60s, now the number, they talk about it as a recovery number, 8,100, 10%. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Patty, the other or less thing than 10%, pardon me. Yeah, that's right. The other thing we don't talk about really is when you take 700,000 animals off a range, there are other impacts for that. For example, there's thousands of, of tons of nutrient that's not recycled on that range, and it will change during that period. So if the herd does recovery, it won't recovery, recover in the same quality range that it had before. You know, just think of how much nutrient they recycle through their, you know, eating of, of the lichens and whatever else they're consuming there and, and distributing that energy across the range, the nutrient, the fertilized range. All of that is ceased right now, and the range will recover in a different direction all on its own, likely. Appreciate the time, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you for your airtime, Patty. And uh, if I don't see, talk to you before Christmas, I hope you and your family and all your listeners have a Merry Christmas. I wish the same to you and yours. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Final break of the morning. Marie, you're there. Home heating rebate. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Marie. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome. And uh, I want to talk about the heat pump. 
uh, this past June, I had to get my oil tank replaced, mm-hmm. and it cost me $3,000. The next day, they filled the tank up. It was $891. In September, I had $325 more, and the other day, 600 and something. And uh, I, I can't afford to take all that, you know, take my tank out and everything now after getting it done to have a heat pump installed. Mm-hmm. It would cost an awful lot of money, a lot more than it would. I would get back for it, I think. Well, no question. I mean, even if you stack up all the different programs, very likely, especially if you need some electric uh, upgrades in the home, it yes. will cost more money out of pocket. Now, that said, there are some interest-free loans out there for people who want to avail of them. But yes. no question, the grant money is not going to cover the entire cost. No. No, no, my dear. When I bought this house 20 years ago, we had a whole new furnace installed, the whole system, and it cost us $6,500 back then. But, uh, you know, now this, this year, the oil tank came up for the replacement, and I got that done. And, uh, like, I'm not going to have everything torn up now and uh, go back, you know, to something else. Yeah, no, of course. So there's going to be a lot of people who... Whether it be because they don't have the additional monies required, maybe they just don't want to go through the headache, maybe they're looking at the eventual price of electricity, uh, what that's going to mean, and they're not going to make a move. Now, some people inevitably will. I mean, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro says they've seen a surge in people that are moving away from furnace oil or stove oils, but a lot of people are going to stick with what they got. Yes. I'm 80 years old. I mean, I don't want to have that tear up now. No, fair enough. I get it. And uh, another thing I wanted to talk about was the oil rebate. Uh, I mailed my form in on September 22nd, and that was the one for $891, and I haven't heard a word about it. Not a word. So the maximum, we're talking about the home heating supplement. I thought the maximum available was $500. What's the $891 you're referring to? Oh, $891 for, for furnace oil. No, I, I just sent a copy of that bill. Oh, I see. That's right. You oh, had to yeah. include a copy no, of the no, bill. No, no, yes, I'm yes, talking yes. about the oil rebate. I'm supposed to get back like $500. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I haven't heard a sound about it, and it's been gone since the 22nd of September. Unless you've been told that it's been rejected, you should be getting it. The deadline okay. for application is today, so nobody's gotten it as far as I know as of yet. Okay. Yep. And, and the other $500 that you're allowing us, uh, a lot of people I know have gotten theirs, but I haven't received mine as yet. But no, I'm not, you know, I'm not just begging for that, but uh, it's nice to get if you can get it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's all the help, especially with the kind of weather we're having now, you know. Yeah, especially on the windy days. That's the one that really makes the house cold. Yes, for sure, for sure. No, I'd rather keep my furnace and my oil after just getting a new tank and everything installed. Uh, why would I go through the expense of getting everything torn up again, you know? Yeah, now someone just sent a, a note saying the savings and heat when you have a, a heat pump versus yes. oil is extraordinary. But your circumstance is unique in that you just spent a bunch of money to have a new tank yes. and all the uh, everything else that goes with it. So your cost recovery is a much different issue than maybe mine would be, considering yes. that my tank and furnace, knock on wood, are still in good shape and they've been there for a long time. I haven't spent money on a new tank since I bought the home that I live in. Well, see, I bought this house 20 years ago. And we had the whole new system installed back then because they had propane here when I bought it and wood. And uh, we couldn't manage that because my husband had heart surgery and stuff. So we went with the furnace. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, this June I had to get the tank replaced because they said after 20 years I had to get it replaced. So I did. Yep. So I spent a lot of money this summer so far. Well, hopefully you'll be toasty warm throughout the winter, and I hope you're doing well, Marie. 
Uh, I am. I'm doing very well, my dear. And uh, have a good Christmas, you and your family. Same to you. Thank you. Take care. You too, Marie. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, last word of the day goes to line number two. Good morning, Leah Patterson, who's the president of the Be Kind Project. Welcome to the show. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are you? I couldn't be better. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Good. Let's talk about Christmas afternoon. Yep. So this year we are partnering up with the Seniors Club here in town to do a Christmas afternoon up at the Seniors Club. Terrific. What's going to go on at that event? We have crafts, music, and some goodies donated by local businesses. So I, I know that there's, you know, these kind of events are really popular over the Christmas holidays. So what's the relationship between you and the Seniors Club? You just so uh, happen to do it because you wanted to support them? No, we're a group of teenagers here in Lab West. Oh, teenagers. Oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm only 15 years old. Fantastic. Yeah, so, and we all have, like, really good connections with our grandparents and things like that. And, you know, we've always, we know how hard it is over the last couple of years for them to get out of the house, things like that. Mm-hmm. So any so time we can get them out and get them connecting with us and connecting with the community is a good day. That's fantastic. You want to give a shout-out to some of your fellow teenagers who were involved? Yeah, so it's myself, my best friend Evan Colburn, Sarah Trainer, Katie Pike, and our big group of friends. Absolutely wonderful. So a Christmas afternoon, December the 8th at 1.30 p.m. If folks are interested in the area, there's going to be a meeting with the Seniors Advocate, and you can sign up while you're attending that meeting as well. In addition, if you simply want to send an email to find out more or to get involved, it's a simple one. It's the the Be Kind Project 21 at gmail.com. I always love to hear from teenagers and youth here on the show, and I'm really pleased you're doing this with your buddies, Leah. Thanks for the, making time for the program. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. So it's going to be uh, December the 8th at 1.30 p.m. in the basement of the Basilica of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Whew. And you can indeed sign up if and when you're going to attend the meeting with the seniors, uh, the seniors advocate coming up on the 6th in the area. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.